Hi everybody, welcome back to Rock Talk with Dr. Cropper. Today is a very exciting day, as you may have noticed, it's episode 100. Um, very proud to have gotten to this milestone, and I couldn't have got here without you all listening. As the uh, the show turned two this week, it's uh, a cool thing for me that uh, we got to 100 episodes right at two years, because that means that I stuck to a 50-week work year two years in a row uh, left to my own devices. So that's a nice thing to prove to myself. And then uh, I guess when you factor in 40 or so premium episodes now, um, that uh, 41, yeah, so it's more than that. But anyway, um, yeah, cool to have to prove to myself that I can stay on task for two years, uh, totally self-regulated. We are almost at 10,000 total downloads as far as the geographical distribution. Um, we got 82 countries, downloads in 82 countries, and from 1,875 cities. The, uh, the top city is still... Toronto, but uh, there have been some climbing the ranks. Uh, San Jose is still up near the top. Seattle, you're up near the top. Houston, you're near the top. Uh, New York, uh, particularly Smithtown, uh, suburb on Long Island. Columbus, Ohio, go Bucks, And Ansonia, Connecticut, where I have a lot of family from. So I'm not sure if it's family listeners or just uh, coincidental, but uh, yeah, so very thankful for you all. Thank you for being here today. Uh, if you're new, welcome, and I hope you like what you hear. And if you've been listening for a while, uh, thank you so much for your loyalty. It means a lot. Um, before we get going, I just want to thank you for stopping by. Uh, I know the amount of alone time it takes to get through a podcast is not always easy to come by these days, and this one is a long one. So, uh, yeah get comfortable and uh, hopefully uh, you'll you'll find that it was a worthwhile expenditure of your time. Uh, if you are interested in more content from me, if you have an Apple device, you can subscribe to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour for $4.99 American per month. There is a one month free trial and that entitles you to weekly bonus episodes priority sequence for topic requests and 10% off of merchandise. Um, lastly, I think before we get going, if you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review wherever you listen, those are very helpful to me. So today we are talking about the Grateful Dead's Europe 72 tour for its 50th anniversary, which, uh, I mean, the tour wrapped up a couple weeks ago, but I had a backlog of episodes and had to take a little time to collect my thoughts and everything. Uh, but it works out that this is, uh, I'm going to put it out today, Friday, but uh, tomorrow, the 18th, is the two-year anniversary of episode two, which was the first real episode, I would say. The episode one was just introduction. and. Um, episode two was talking about this tour as well. So I thought it was fitting for it to be episode 100, uh, 
two years later. Uh, there's not going to be much of me talking solo in this one. My guest, uh, speaking of Connecticut, is my friend Alex Mialopoulos from Connecticut, who uh, I know through some of the Discord servers, and uh, I consider a, uh, a I, I don't know, it feels, uh, you know, uh, arrogant to call him an apprentice, but he he's newer to the dead. I got him into, uh, I got him on the bus last summer, and uh, he's been uh, a great asset to the dead community already, and I know that will uh, continue. And uh, it was a pleasure to have him on this journey with me. Uh, listening to the whole tour and uh, we had a great chat about the tour and so I'm just gonna let the that conversation speak for itself and I won't uh, do too much talking here and I will link in the description here to the other Europe 72 episodes I've done the one two years ago which uh, I would say this one kind of replaces in a way but you know there's there's still stuff that I mentioned in that one that I probably that we did not get to in my conversation with Alex today. And then if you want a really in-depth look, last year I did one ranking all of the dark stars and all of the other ones from the tour and went in great detail. Uh, those are quite long, longer than this episode and uh, feature my brother Spencer and my friend Jeremy Shaw. So those ones I'll link in here as well. And I also was a guest on Working Man's Pod talking about Europe 72 uh, back in April. So I'll link those four in the description here. All right, so without further ado, let's just uh, dive straight into my conversation with Alex. All right, everyone, please welcome to the show, my good friend, Alex Mialopoulos from Connecticut, who uh, was on the premium show about a month ago, but uh, this is the first you're hearing from him here on the main show. Welcome, buddy. Thank you for having me. I am absolutely ecstatic to be here. I mean, <laughs> I feel I feel important. You know, I'm on the real thing. <laughs> you are important. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So we're here. It's a, it's a special day. It's episode 100. And uh, what better to talk about for that than the Grateful Dead's Europe 72 tour for its 50th anniversary. And uh, this is going to be released on, on Saturday, which is two years. Um, uh, actually, no, maybe I'll put it out tomorrow on Friday. But anyway, uh, the 18th is two years since the first time that I talked about Europe 72, uh, which was episode two. So the first kind of real episode, episode one was just an introduction. So uh, it all lined up nicely for this one today. I think it'll be good. That's you should pop champagne bottles, man. Are you kidding me? You should have a drink <laughs> at the end of this. <laughs> um, so just to give you all a, uh, a little overview of the structure we're going to have today. Uh, we decided we will give you our ranking at the beginning and then explain going chronologically through the tour. I think that'll be the most expeditious way and least confusing. Um, there, 
and then, you know, we can, there are lots of shows where we agreed on either completely, we ranked them all out of a hundred or, you know, scored them all over out of a hundred. Rather, there were lots where we had exactly the same or within a point or two. And then there are a few with a wider disparity. And I think it'll make sense to explain when, as those cases arise chronologically, um, before we start though, uh, general, um, you know, thoughts about how, how was this experience for you, your first time making the pilgrimage through the whole tour on the anniversaries? Well, this is actually very, it's very interesting to hear this because even though I've heard a lot of these shows before, just like doing it again with new ears, you know, I said that a lot to you over it, um, <clears throat> over the course, just new years or new ears, because these are the first shows that I listened to getting into the dead, you know, that Veneta Cornell, like it was just really incredible to hear not only the progression of the band throughout, but like just, you know, I feel like it's just, it's different. It's such a whole completely different vibe because, you know, I'm not even, I, I'm going to get into things that we should talk about later, but I just, I thought it was fantastic. Just some of my favorite dead shows. I got to go back to some of like the best banter moments, some of the best solos. I, I don't know. I just, I love Europe 72. I'm glad that I did it for sure. It was a yeah. trek, but yeah, I, I loved every minute of it. Good. Yeah. I, I know what you mean about the vibe. I think it's one of the things I love about it is it, it's kind of a, the prime example of how things that you would think are intangible factors really do have an effect on the music that gets produced. Um, you know, even though they're professionals, they're still human beings and their fluctuations in mood and all of that matter. And this tour, everyone who was involved, uh, you know, pretty unanimously when they talk about it, just rave about how much fun they were all having the whole time. And, you know, they had their families with them. They brought like everybody and they're just cruising around visiting all these places they haven't been before on the buses and, uh, you know, having a blast the whole time and playing in these really beautiful uh, concert halls with great acoustics and all, and, uh, you know, touring with a fairly new uh, chunk of their songbook that would become, you know, a big part of the repertoire of the rest of their career. But at this point, you can tell that those songs are really fresh to them and they're st still really excited to be playing them every night. And yeah, I just think all of those factors shine through in the music. Yeah, it's definitely something, the entire thing, you can really feel it. Like they're very open and personal about it. And I think, <clears throat> I, I know I want to talk about this in more detail later, but I think um, it's like they're, they pot, they're very polished at the same time. Like they're like, all right, this is what we have. This is the best of us. We're going to take these, these songs, these vibes that we that we have in America, and bring it to a whole new continent. Mm -hmm. So the like they were almost on their best musical behavior throughout the entire time. Right. Well, one of the part of the impetus behind the tour was Jerry, in particular, was really keen on trying to 
of, of playing to people who didn't speak English so that the music would have to be so good that it could convince people on its own, even if they didn't understand a word they were singing. I mean, yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, like, especially in the, I love hearing them talk to the crowd and like the German shows they had, wasn't that when said the whistles, they have the whistles uh, there. Oh yeah. Uh, in Frankfurt, when any, any of you got a whistle, blow it. And, uh, <laughs> The in Dusseldorf, um, when uh, Bob says, "I say my dog has no nose," and then Phil's like, "No nose? How does he smell?" And Bob's like, "Blooming awful." Exactly. Like it's just <laughs> brilliant. They're well, brilliant. It's kind of like the last hurrah for their youthful innocence, I think, because after this, once Pigpen departs for good, you can feel a bit of that disappear also not e- i mean youthful innocence could be that could be taken in another way i had this written down in my notes when we were uh just comparing it to other dead errors i honestly think that they've combined in two different vibes um and they've reached a point where they're both technically proficient in everything that they do so they're like wait a minute if we can play this well just you know blues bluegrass that country americana that psychedelic thing um then they could take it to a more advanced level musically you know like uh some of the greatest fastest technically proficient players aren't that like theoretically advanced and these guys reached a point where like, wait a minute, this is incredible. We can take it to that next level. So you can totally see that like it's a diving board for them. Europe 72 is a diving board and to like 73 and 74 are so intricate layered that it's jazz. It's incredible. And you, that's the point where you can kind of hear like, oh, wait a minute, we can do more. We can go further. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this, <laughs> this tour has always been like a Goldilocks to me where, You've got that jazziness, you know, heading a bit of like heading towards Prague coming in, but still with those bluesy roots with the pig pen numbers. And because at this point, it's kind of the last hurrah of uh, having a decent amount of stage banter. I think that adds to the the more youthful, innocent feel as well. Yeah, it's still got that bite. That's I, I say that in my notes. It's got the like the the seventy two isness with the seventy one bite. Mm-hmm. That's a great way to put like it together. Yeah. All right. Should we uh, get into yeah. the rankings? Let's go for it. Okay. So I guess I'll go first. I had four with a hundred. Um, Rotterdam, both Paris shows and Frankfurt. And then I had one with a 99 Dusseldorf. And then I had two with a 98, the May 25th London show, second last night of the tour and Amsterdam. And then I had four with a 97, the second night of the tour at Wembley 
the first night in Copenhagen, Bickershaw, and the last night of the tour. Then I had a two with a 96, the uh, first two nights at the Lyceum. Uh, Munich comes in 14th place with a 94, uh, you know, which shows you in and of itself how strong the tour is when you score a 94 and you're ranking two thirds of the way down. Um, 15th, I've got the second night in Copenhagen with a 92. And then I had three tied with a 91 Hamburg, Lille, and Newcastle. Arhus is in 19th with an 86. Luxembourg, 20th with an 85. The opening night of the tour, 21st with an 84. And Bremen in last with a 73, which is due in large part to it being so truncated. It's not like, I mean, it does have a few more mistakes than the others too, but if it were full length, it would be better than a 73. Yeah, I had difficulties, or not really difficulties, just like, it's so weird because, what do you think of, uh, and before I do my rankings, where is it? Did you think it was better than 4-7, musically, aside from the setbacks? Bremen? Yeah. I think it peaks higher. Yeah. Uh, like, it does have a, it has a couple false starts, which they're um, they're not on the level where, like, if it was a normal show, they likely would have abandoned ship and started over. But because they were like shooting for TV, they're they're just playing in a studio, so they're like, oh, let's start that one again. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I yeah, I agree with that. Because my problem with Bre- yeah, I, I don't I I was higher on um four seven when we first did it because of that suite at the second mm-hmm. the second set, but yeah, it, it definitely went down. All right. Well, well, it has like oh well, here, we'll we'll talk about it when we once we yeah. do the chronological explanation. All right. So mine starts off with two hundreds. Um Paris and London, this the final set or the final show, five twenty-six. Um and the first night in Paris, right? Yes, the first night. Yeah. Um then I have three ninety-nines, uh Frankfurt, the second Paris show, uh and Rotterdam, all three ninety-nines. Um Hamburg was ninety-eight point five one one of two uh Dusseldorf, you mean? Four twenty-four? Yeah. I am I wrong in saying that? Yeah, four twenty-four is Dusseldorf. Oh yeah. Whoops. Four twenty my mistake. Four twenty-four I had at ninety-eight point five, which was my only one of two halvesies I gave gave out. I don't think Zach was too pleased with me when I said that, but you know, it's it's whatever. So after D- 
Dusseldorf, I have 390 or 298s, um, 510 Amsterdam, and um, the second London show, 524, both 98s. Um, I have 297s, the first show in London, 523, and then um, Bickershaw, 5-7, Bickershaw Festival. Um, 4-8, it's my only 96. I was very shocked to hear um, 4-8 being that good after like just the difference between four seven four it was ridiculous. Yeah, it's um, a jump of like twelve thirteen points. At ninety five, I had sorry, Lil. I was also high on that one. Um, at I have two ninety fours. One of them being Copenhagen four seventeen. And then 518 was my other 94, which was Munich. I have the second to last London show also as a 94. Wow, I missed the 94 both times. All right, um, 414 Copenhagen is a 93 along with 416 Aarhus, which honestly, I really loved. It's just like... When I took a more like critical eye to it, critical ear. <laughs> um, 429.92, which was Hamburg, another show that I kind of I had to make a lot of mis- uh, sacrifices with my ears because, you know, I feel like you're, you've done this how many years in a row and you kind of have that. At least four, maybe. A little more. Yeah. I mean, it's like I had to take it easy on the rankings, you know? Yeah. Uh, 411 is my only 91, Newcastle. Um, 516, I gave an 89. I know we were kind of, that was one of the shows that we um, despair or disagreed on, Luxembourg. Um, But yeah, um, 47, this. First show of the tour, I gave an 82. And then 421, the uh, Bremen, 79.5. Okay. So um, let's uh, start going chronological. And uh, before we finish, remind me, I want to um, let's quickly add up our scores and, you know, divide by 22 to see who you know, graded harsher overall. Okay. Um, okay. So opening night, April 7th at Wembley, um, the uh, kind of the only typical arena show of the tour um, is a 12,000 seat place. They sold about 8,000 at least uh, for the opening night. And uh I don't know if that coupled with like a bit of opening night jitters. I mean, that that's a lot of empty seats to, to be staring at like one third of the arena. Uh, and then, you know, a typically reserved London crowd warming up to them. Uh, I feel like those factors all kind of conspire to uh, create a somewhat tentative first set. 
or like yeah. there's there's no mistakes but uh it does feel a bit like them playing it safe um i used a an analogy when i was on working man's pod a few months ago about how uh when i was in high school throwing discus i i never quite mastered the spin so i would do one at least just standing there to make sure i got one in without faulting and then if i was feeling good about my chances i'd try a few spins this opening night particularly the first set feels a bit like that like them doing a standing throw to like okay let's just settle in and uh you know get you know get a decent showdown without any big screw-ups and then we can take some chances more as we go yeah and yeah, I said I also said it was jittery. Um, I know this is kind of a harsher word to use when it comes to the dead, but I noticed that their transitions were a little like rough. Yeah, like there's a, a more clear point where they're flipping the switch from one song into the next, and it's not. Yeah, and I um, I said this to you early on, but playing in the band is like the litmus test for how a show is going to go. And this one, like the the switch into just the jam, the, the free jam was like, that was rough. That was rough. Like, I was just like, come on, come on. You can do, you guys can do better than that. But I, it's definitely the opening night shutters. I mean, it's the first impression, you know, that's, yeah, it's it like how rough on the psyche, you know. Oh yeah, it's like a a first date where you you're like in your head about like, oh, should I talk about this or talk about this, and you end up like, you know, not coming off as your your most natural, you know, funny and engaging self, and then hopefully you get to a second date and do much better, like uh, the second night at Wembley, but. <laughs> um, so before we abandoned the first night, I gave it an 84 and you gave it a 82. Okay. So basically the same. I, I think we both agreed that it's jam suite is pretty good. The truck and other one, El Paso, other one, Warfrat. Yeah, that um, was, I had that. I think, I, I think I listed that as one of my, you know, we'll get to it later, but yeah, I listed it as one of my favorite jam suites to, mm. throughout the tour. I did notice that uh, after the jam suite, Ramble on Rose has a lot of lyrical flubs, which is uh, another thing that pulled this one down a bit. Yeah, but that you know what? It's not even the lyrical flubs are something that's just common. Mm-hmm. So well, it's like. Not so much on this tour, I find. That's one other thing I like about this tour that usually the the song portion of each song, like the vocals and the lyrics and the little transitions and stuff are always spot on, which is another thing to recommend this tour by. Yeah. But there are a couple, I mean, like for Casey Jones and trucking, like those were, those are, I, I don't know. I got to find it and look to my notes. Oh yeah. Like, trucking gets flubbed a lot lyrically. And even what was the show that you had that you said they screwed up trying to get? Oh, there's a there's a couple where Jerry often like sings the second verse twice or sings the second and third in the reverse order. 
just like a minor pet peeve of mine because I really like the China Cat lyrics. But I mean, it's for me lyrically. It, it, I mean, I just I picked up on. I'm like, all right, it's fine. You know, they that's not as big of a deal for me. But um, definitely that first set is what really really brought it down for me. Yeah. I will say that those cautious or uneven moments are fairly like imperceptible if you aren't listening closely like we were like making notes with the intent to rank it like if you just put it on as a show to enjoy you will enjoy it. Yeah, no, but I mean that's just the th- like that, that only applies to a lot of stuff. <clears throat> yeah, that applies to literally everything. I mean Definitely, like fine tune, fine tuned ears have its uh, ups and downs, but definitely, if you're just like a casual listener, it you're not gonna be like, "Oh, this sucks." Yeah. So, so I listened to the the March shows before this as well, and um, I uh, I I would have this behind the. Uh, the 23rd, 25th, 26th, and 28th from New York, but ahead of the other shows of 72 up until this point. Yeah, because this is like the morph. It's like they're taking a picture of themselves from the States all dolled up from the entirety of their existence and bringing us giving that a sound and a vibe in a completely different place, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's definitely going to, it's different. It's going to be different. I mean, I didn't listen to the Academy of music shows. I was sadly working. Um, But um, from what you said, it definitely seemed definitely something to agree with uh, that four, seven is, below those shows yeah about half of them yeah um okay so let's move on to night two april 8th at wembley i gave it a 97 and had it you know kind of level with bickershaw the end what did you give it again 96 yeah i gave it a 96 okay so we basically felt the same my rationale was you know, pound for pound, if you will, like minute for minute, it's about as good as any. It's just, it is significantly shorter than the ones that I ranked ahead of it. It comes in under three hours. Yeah. I mean, I, again, it's like a, it's like a, it's, it's a pass. It's a pass because they, they seem to have just kind of, all right, screw it. We're not going to care how long we play. We're just going to play well and see what comes out, you know? Mm. Um, and it's, it's only 24 hours, you know, it's like, for me, it's a, it's a 14 point difference. It's a 14 point difference in shows. I mean, that, that dark set was just incredible. In my notes, I said it created a scene. So visceral in the body and visual in the mind. Bobby's playing throughout that show was incredible. I remember that. And then 
I really loved how they just immediately brought out good love and caution. Just that was that caution. The caution throughout this is just nuts. It's mm-hmm. really all reminiscent of like the late 60s, like 68 shows. Yeah. This, this show is just super energetic and focused and tight from start to finish. I mean, it, it opens with the birth of me and my uncle, Mr. Charlie sequence, which they, uh, they repeated that opening one, two, three, several times on the tour. And for good reason, it works really well together. Um, you've got a goat contender, Cumberland blues, which opens the original Europe 72. Uh, yeah. Bob's yellow dog story. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, ten- this Tennessee Jed is fantastic. And was, this was the first Europe 72 show I got when I was like just getting on the bus. And I remember Jed being the moment I like fell even deeper in love with this show and the band. It just, uh, it's so uh, like picturesque in a way, like the, when Jerry sings that opening night line, cold iron shackles, ball and chain, listen to the whistle of the evening train. It's like, you're already there. It's like, Oh yeah. Okay. I'm on a, I'm rocking on a, a porch somewhere in the mountains in Tennessee. Yeah, no, I can, I mean, even with Cumberland blues, because I remember listening to this show when I, when I as well first got on the bus, cause you were like, do the Europe 72 shows, man. Just do them, do them, do them. Trust me. And I'm like, all right, all right. And I did it. And I, cause you know, I definitely love this, the, the bite, the 71 bite of the, of this tour. And that Cumberland blues is nuts. I like all the Cumberland blues they did throughout the tour are incredible. I think personally 414s is better, but, um, like I remember hearing that coming was like, Oh my God, like just Jerry on that. It's nuts. Absolutely nuts. Yeah. And another thing with good loving, this started a good loving at the first half of this tour is the half 71 bite, the half 72, like out there, Mm -hmm. like spacey, you know? Yeah. It's very spacey. And I don't really like the songs that do that. Like tr- they do it with Good Lovin' and Truckin' up until a certain point. I'm not really a fan of that, which is also what brought my rankings down for the, the shows that kind of employ that vibe to Good Lovin' and Truckin'. Yeah, you like the the bluesier songs to not like get too far out. Yeah, like, you know, I've there's there's a certain point at like the end of one truck and where it sounded like like am I listening to Dark Star right now? Like this is like <laughs> fractured as all hell. Like this yeah. is nuts. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it doesn't fit in my to my ears at all. Yeah, that's like, totally that's, fair. Yeah. Um yeah, I think this playing in the band and good loving back to back are like two of the best 10 minute versions you're ever gonna hear. Just so like compact and intense and smooth it's like both of them are like being shot out of a psychedelic cannon yeah that's definitely 
and then you've got uh, probably the best looks like rain of all time. I, I uh, this is a song that I think definitely peaked here with Jerry on the pedal steel. See, I mean, I wouldn't. I I really don't know. So I've definitely loved that looks like rain because those like whenever they like just bring the hammer down like psychedelically and you're just like where am i going like they always like come down with that just kind of like slower just it just it's ear candy yeah like a soothing ballad and i the placement of that was also just perfect Mm -hmm. perfect yeah and then as you mentioned the the main event in the second set dark star which is one of the most like energetic uh focused and consistently melodic versions ever i i call it coke star sometimes because it's so like wired and then that final four minutes with that proto mind left body jam it's like some of the most beautiful stuff they ever laid down yeah how how seamlessly it transitions into sugar mags definitely i think bob drove that Mm -hmm. he was just like the songs where bobby where bob is like the the main man like driving it are some of the best versions because it's like the bed just gets thicker yeah for people to just do whatever over you know totally like it's it's a cake you know, it's yeah. a cake. Yeah. And like the mags itself is pretty good. And then into that super intense caution and arguably the best one more Saturday night. It's a, you know, if you're going to have a shorter by their standard show finishing with an hour long suite like that with like four top 10 versions at the very least. And the other one is a pretty good version. You know, that's a, it's a pretty good way to wrap it up. And I, uh, I also mentioned in my appearance on Working Man's Pod how this show is the first of four in 72 that I, I call the, the Mount Rushmore of pocket-sized 72 shows. They all come in between two hours, 50 minutes, and three hours. Uh, it's this one, April 8th, Wembley, uh, Veneta, The Middle Night in St. Louis, October 18th and wichita november 17th those four um they uh they're able to punch above their weight and compete with ones that are you know up to an hour longer because they're just so you know intense and relentless from start to finish yeah i definitely agree with that um definitely with yeah Pocket size is a great way to describe it because even though like with the bookended London shows to start and end the tour, like just looking at say four, eight to five twenty six, like it's just, it's like someone brought a magnifying glass to four, eight, you know, just mm-hmm. everything just kind of just beefed up. Yeah, like I always start people with this if they're 
not deadheads and they're like, yeah, I'll listen to a show. Like, okay, this will give you Europe 72, everything that's great about it in the most concise package possible. Cause not everyone's used to listening to three to four hour concerts. Right. Okay. So from there, they headed North to Newcastle, April 11th, which was probably the, the least, you know, aesthetically pleasing venue of the tour. Um, just, a, I mean, I've seen some describe it as a concrete dump. Basically it was just a, um, a city hall, which I learned from the dead cast. They say it the reverse in England, when they say city hall, it's like us saying civic center here and they use civic center the way we use city hall. So basically just, you know, your typical post-war civic center, which they were used to playing places like that in the States. Uh, apparently there were like concrete pillars obstructing the sight lines and stuff. Um, we both gave this one a 91. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, I found it to be loose. Um, I really love the um, greatest story ever told opening. Um, mm. Definitely one of my favorite renditions of the tour. Um, but after that, it just becomes casual, just a casual jam throughout. Um, but I really think that they set the vibe. I know they say, or I said before, playing in the band is like the litmus test, but that sugary was just, it was tasty. Mm-hmm. Like he was like, you could tell from every little lick that he did, Jerry was just feeling it all the way through. Mm-hmm. I think it, it has an earthy vibe to it. Uh, David Lemieux said on the Deadcast, Newcastle's like a tough working class city and he gets that kind of vibe from this show and i can see the earthboundness but i also think it's sophisticated within that the the teapot on the cover is a great choice actually um you know you could play just about any part of this show um you know during high tea and it wouldn't seem way out of place um even good loving was excellent uh and had a, a sophisticated um sense to the jam pretty intricate interplay not the the intense psychedelia of april 8th but i definitely agree with that um i wrote in my notes here it's a matured psychedelia especially with that china cat um i know you writer um it's definitely tonal tonally it's one of the most pleasing um even the like the trucking kind of went from that you know just kind of like that that groove to that spatial vacuumness that 72 provides oh oh yeah this is one of the best truckings of the tour 19 minutes the first half is just like ripping straight trucking and then the second half is that beautiful extended transition to the other one yeah i mean like definitely yeah, sophisticated is a very good word for 11. Um, and it's got the first long first set of the tour, 18 songs, which would be, it would become something of a trademark of this tour and the rest of 72 to 74, where you've got these first sets that are like pushing 20 songs long. 
Yeah, and I think it's it's bad. That's it, it, where like the balance just enters. You know, like they feel like we we've. It's like a give and take type thing, you know, like the the audience expects just like normal songs, you know, without that um, added personality to it. Um, and then the band just delivers like themselves in the second set. Mm-hmm. It becomes very open. And definitely I could see how like they like they just pulling the ripcord they're yanking on the ripcord and it's they're getting going like they're starting to get consistent mm-hmm. i also think newcastle is a great night for ballads you've got all-time great versions of looks like rain comes a time and broke down palace yeah that broke down palace was awesome yeah i think most most of the ballads um throughout this the tour are just great versions that this was the blues jams like um big boss man from this show is also great i think mm-hmm. pig pen pig pen really gets showed off very well especially like right from the start which is very interesting because keith doesn't really start to become prominent until later and you can kind of see that that keyboard balance starting to shift just going from just all the way just pig you know it's his it's his job he's taking it to all right here comes keith the new era um but definitely pig pen is just this is one of another one of my favorite pig pen shows so okay so they take the ferry across to copenhagen and play at tivoli concert hall which is on the grounds of one of uh, the oldest amusement parks in the world. And I believe was uh, this concert hall was part of Walt Disney's inspiration for Sleeping Beauty's castle at Disneyland in Anaheim. Uh, Cinderella's castle was inspired by one in Germany um, for the Disney world in Florida. But um, so April 14th, the uh, first night here, they went to Aarhus after and then back to here. Um, I think this show you know, sounds like it was played at an amusement park. It has a very fun vibe to it, uh, kind of jubilant, even in Dark Star. Um, David Lemieux said on the Deadcast, he sometimes thinks of the shows on this tour in colors. And he thinks of this one like a rainbow and considers it the brightest of the tour. Um, I don't know if I would, it's hard to say brightest, but it's definitely one of the brighter ones. Yeah. I think this, you know, this show has that consistent in the wrong way. (laughs) Okay. Um, Like, tag so, that we've had before because I was like I gave it a 93 you know I love I liked it uh the come it has my favorite Cumberland blues it has that bounce but it has that consistency where it's like all right like it's technically great which has gives it that fun bounce but it does like for me it just didn't have it lacked the feel you know like 
a lot of these shows are like missing like a key thing that would really bring it to that upper echelon of 96 and above. Yeah, I could see that. I, uh, I gave it like a 96, 97, but I, it did slip a little bit in my rankings from, uh, like I had it seventh two years ago when I did this and I would have it 10th now. Yeah. I mean, definitely it, I had it as a 94 or maybe even 95 to start, but, um, I, I don't know. Like it's not, it's the technical proficiency and the, like, it's just, it's, it's good. It's consistent. I, like the meme, like I love the meme by McGee. Like that's that's one of my favorite. I like I love that song in general, but the Dead's version is just so like laid back. And the, but I don't know. Good lovin's, but good lovin' pigs raps. Those are great. Pigs raps that show were one of my favorite. Some of my favorites. Yeah, it has one of the coolest jam suites, uh, you know, on paper and in execution because it goes Dark Star, Sugar Megs good loving caution good loving um yeah that's i had that written down as well yeah um and the dark star pre-verse is really pretty and soaring it's like 17 minutes with them like resisting going into the verse and then you've got like one of the fastest feeling groovy jams after the verse really euphoric and then they go to space and then like abruptly but still smooth go into sugar mags yeah that that's what it was just and i just like the in and out of good loving caution and good love and i remember um i was driving was it was that easter weekend it was yeah because i was listening to it on the train heading to my dad's yeah, I was listening to that in the car heading to my grandparents. And I'm just like staring at the window. I'm like, what what are they doing? <laughs> I was just so so in shock. That good even though that entire suite is just insane, that specifically the good loving into caution, out of caution, back into good loving was just It was tight but loose, man. It was controlled chaos. Yeah. Definitely one of my favorite moments of just in general from this tour. Mm-hmm. I'm glad uh, I'm glad that came up, by the way, about how we were listening, because we should preface this by saying, um, you know, I think the tour is about 73 hours of music total. It's just impossible to completely control your variables and have the exact same level of focus and energy and lack of distractions and everything for all 22 shows start to finish. And that does affect your opinions to some extent. You know, if you think way differently of a particular show from one year to the next, it's like, I'm always asking myself, Oh, is that because this year I was kind of annoyed or distracted slightly while I was listening. Whereas last year I had, an optimal experience. Like I was listening to it on a long drive, that sort of thing, you know? 
Yeah. And also like looking at my notes, I definitely get more into it once it hits Dusseldorf. Like my paragraphs get longer. Like it gets more in depth. Like I definitely as you definitely, you feel like you're, you go with the band mm-hmm. once it, the tour goes on. It's like, all right, yeah, I'm feeling this even more and more and more, like get more into it. Like you're not going to mm-hmm. have the same level of excitement for four seven as you are going to have five eleven. you know? Yeah. It's, it's all very contextual and relative. Okay, so they zip up to Aarhus April 16th and play in the university's cafeteria, one of the odder uh, venues of the tour. And interestingly, Donna did not make the trip up to Aarhus. So we get a, a shorter show with a bit of a different set list. Not that um, her absence would really change the set list actually just means that playing in the band doesn't have her on it. Um, But this show uh, it's, it's a bit slower and more laid back than most of the others on the tour, but it definitely has a unique vibe. It's uh, I think it has a, a chillness not in in a relaxed way but uh like oh, we're, a just, we're, we're just playing in a cafeteria with like a couple hundred students let's just get crazy what what's the risk yeah i definitely i mean slower relax i mean that kind of i definitely think they have just a nice groove going on like not too much but i think you know how you can tell throughout the show, like they're gradually, like it's a crescendo, like depending, like aside from the ballads, like you can kind of hear them increasing, increasing, getting looser. And, but at the same time, tighter, like they're just kind of like filling into their shoes. This one was different because I felt like the first and second sets had like a, like a vibe switch to them. Mm. Like, especially with, um, the, uh, that jam suite, um, which I also wrote as one of my favorites, uh, the trucking jam into the pr- jam. Then the other one, then me and my uncle then back into the other one, going down the road, feeling bad and did not fade away. The, and, the, um, this had the first, I think of the tour where it was, it didn't go not fade away, going down the road, then not fade away. It just went from going down the road into not fade away. Is that right? No, it is the full sandwich. Oh, it is. Yeah. Oh, then I must have done that wrong. Well, that's all right. But but yeah, it's one of the most unique suites of the tour. It's the only track of the entire box that's just titled Jam because it's 16 minutes of like directionless but not directionless, like wandering around the theme. It's it's really cool. Yeah, it's, it's like they're taking a bunch of trails in a park before going on the main one, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I really I, love. I love that jam. I was listening to it on my listen two years ago. I was like going for a walk at night, and it was snowing a little bit. I had my headphones on with a cigar, and I was just like wandering around the neighborhood. It was really far out. <laughs> you were being controlled, man, by the music. I kept like 
flicking my head around thinking there's going to be like a wolf or something. <laughs> uh, and, oh, well, speaking of which, actually, the uh, the first set closes with Dire Wolf, which is uh, the first one they'd done in a little over a year. And they would only play it four times on the tour. They did a good job with those Dire Wolves. Mm-hmm. This one having uh, um, having both Dire Wolf and Cumberland like adds to that kind of working man's vibe. Also, playing in the band was the furthest out uh, to this point of the tour and really excellent. And the good loving that kicks off set two is so really, really good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, there, there's not a bad good look, but on this one, pigs rapping was mean and the jamming matches the energy. Yeah. Yeah. They definitely, it's, it definitely gets more like, personal like you know how like they sometimes get locked in like they're all like they're all like playing their own things but within the boundaries of the the vibe and the groove and it ends up going places like such as that jam you know Mm. like they're just kind of like just letting go yeah i would i would say overall like this show in a word is upside down between the the jam suite being kind of inside out and Billy absent for a lot of it and uh, no Donna. And it's also the only show of the tour that does not have Casey Jones, Sugar Magnolia or one more Saturday night. Wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So anyway, um, Back to Copenhagen for April 17th. I gave this one a 92 and had it in 15th place. I gave this one a 94. Okay. I thought this one has a really nice, like mellow wintry vibe. Very soothing. It also has a unusual set list because it was, the first two they split it in three sets and the first two were filmed for danish tv um so you've got some stuff in unusual orders uh but like all nice it's open opening with that cold rain and snow that's basically perfect i would probably it's my benchmark version when i'm judging another one um that definitely sets the mood whenever they open cold rain and snow me and bobby mcgee it sets like a really mellow mood for the whole show. I find. Um, and then the third set is just an excellent 66 minute jam suite, dark star sugar makes caution into the only Johnny be good of the tour. Um, this dark star, um, like it kind of ranks lower amongst the ones on the tour by default because it's kind of an understated beauty. Sounds like exploring an ice castle to me. I got like strong Narnia vibes to it. Um, but I think it's a, you know, it's bound to be kind of under the radar, but it's one that uh, diehards will really appreciate when they're looking for one that's a bit more mellow. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, 
Hamburgs. Okay. Definitely a storytelling one. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the ones that the dark stars with a strong sense of direction are really some of the most incredible ones because they're not like they're locked into something, you know, they have to be one with whatever they or wherever they've decided to go because a lot of them have like these dancing um, pre-verse sections that are completely uh, different than the post-verse or even just kind of like go in all kinds of different directions but it is inherently more difficult to do what 417 dark star um or what 417 dark star has in 429s like um even the tiger what, uh, what was the tiger shark dark star oh munich yeah yeah like that's just it's it paints a picture you know and that's just it's insane yeah some of them uh can definitely be kind of like adhd and it's nice sometimes and it's like okay no we've this is the vibe for this one and we're just gonna explore this vibe fully yeah it's it's it gets very deep Mm -hmm. and this caution i think is my favorite of the two actually um i mean it's it's almost 24 minutes long but it really runs the gamut it's ferocious yet polished primal yet jazzy perfectly blend blended you know it flows it's focused and i think it's a great preview of what could have been if pig ben's health didn't fail him it really shows that he was evolving even more you know exponentially than he had previously here at the end i wrote raucous in capital letters same thing No, I completely agree. That was, it's, as I said before, all of the cautions, because I have barely gotten into anything outside of late 60s, early 70s dead. I've done some 77, I've done some 89, like I've done some of the, like the, the shows you have to do, but like listening to these cautions, I'm like, oh my, what the hell is going on? And I'm just like, it literally, whenever I hear that song, all right, you got to get ready for this analogy. You got to get ready. So, you know how in like old cartoons, like from the 20s and 30s, like they're like bouncing up and down, like left and right. Okay. So imagine, I imagine caution as being you're looking at a train that's coming right towards you and it's in color, like in full color, like the, the light is flashing, the train's bouncing up and down off the tracks, there's steam mm-hmm. coming out everywhere, like just flashing lights. Like, it's just kind of like <clears throat> insanity. It is insanity mm-hmm. within a song. And I just think it's some of the most brilliantly executed rhythm, like just insane rhythmic interplay between Bobby, like that's some Bobby and Caution is some of my favorite Bobby ever. Mm-hmm. Like it's funky. It's it's awesome. Definitely yeah. agree with you. Agree you there. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Final thoughts on this show. I would say it uh, 
it just has a nice vibe to it. It's like, uh, it feels like watching the snowfall when you're, you know, from the comfort of a warm ski chalet or something. Yeah. I also think that this show compared to both the previous one, Copenhagen and Aras kind of gives an insight into how we're kind of thinking because definitely technically it's up there. Like I'd say it's right. Like they, they have the kind of the same technical prowess throughout the past three nights, but it's it, the edge is given by the feel and the vibe. Mm. So I think that kind of gives some more, you know, like insight yeah. into how we're really thinking about these. Mm-hmm. But there's another example we'll get to in a little bit where I uh, favored the vibe and you favored the, uh, the technical precision slightly. So, yeah. Um, and then the April 21st Bremen show by far the shortest of the two are just 80 minutes uh, played in a studio, a TV studio uh, without fans other than the band's entourage and crew. Um, it has some great moments like that. Other one is really cool, especially that um, ferocious and, melodic and unique uh five minute jam that it closes with after the uh well no the the ferocity is the the first part of the song but then it closes with this five minute jam after the second verse that's just totally unique and really pretty and interesting um but those great moments are contrasted as we were saying earlier with uh kind of the lone sloppy moments of the tour with three false starts in 10 songs, probably not mistakes that would be big enough to warrant stopping and restarting at an actual show in front of an audience, but it still affects the listening experience. Yeah. I mean, the thing that really just, first of all, Jerry was shredding that entire show. Like, I think it kind of, I don't know, they just weren't trying to me, to me. But yeah. I just thought it was still like, holy hell, this is the result when they're not even just putting any effort into it. Yeah. Like this is what they can do when they're just messing around, it seems, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like the the sax intro on what's going on. The like Marvin said, Oh, that's awesome. Like, that's how we're gonna open the song. And the guy's like, What? No, I was just goofing around warming up. And Marvin said, Well, you goof beautifully. <laughs> Can't you hear me knocking, man? Yeah, yeah. I um, mean it's so in both both we both gave this something in the 70s. I I did 73 and you had 79.5. I was more lenient on this one just because of the you know it was just they were just mm-hmm. messing around like the fact like it was better technically than four than four seven than the first night in london first night of the tour mm-hmm. i think so that's uh, that's that's why i gave it more props yeah overall yeah okay let's uh we'll try to pick up the pace here so this isn't a a super super long episode uh, then we get the, uh, a big gap. I mean, when you consider how short Bremen is, it's almost like having a week off there. So I think I always notice as a listener and I think it shines through and how the band plays 
the by the time you get to the April 24th Dusseldorf show after basically having a week off, they're really, you know, chomping at the bit to get back out there and play a full length show. And in a way it's their first chance in like 10 days because our host was like in the cafeteria and they had to boot it back to Copenhagen and then the second Copenhagen they got the TV cameras and then Bremen so it's like they're really raring to go in Dusseldorf and it's probably my pick for the coolest venue of the tour it's the only time they actually played in a planetarium that beautiful roof that uh, Darkstar in particular sounds like you know gazing up at it um I think this show is the might be the heaviest of the tour. I think we agreed that it's uh it's Billy's best night of the tour if you had to pick one. It sounds like it has just a little extra thump to it. Uh, I mean opens with that phenomenal trucking and then uh I mean it even hints at what's to come in Dark Star during the instrumental break and then maybe my favorite Tennessee Jed after that just because it sounds like a roller coaster in the best way you can tell that they're just having a blast playing it and when bob hollers as they exit the solo it's like sticking the landing like yeah we kicked ass on that version definitely heavy is a great word for it um specifically i think good loving is just nuts because it most of the the shows kind of have that spacey vibe to it but spacey isn't the right word for the way that this good loving goes it gets it goes all dark star and then it goes all caution like it's just they it's like they're mad scientists you know just kind of like working all around the clock like uh what if we do this i don't know where will it go like it's just like out there and in the best way possible and i think bill definitely drove that 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 rhythm that groove that it was just all around like it's definitely definitely heavy yeah no i totally agree on good love and and like playing in the band I wrote vicious and thunderous like Billy was really pounding on the toms during the jam more than you usually hear him do. And Jerry was doing volume swells as he's stepping on the wah, but it was still melodic. I also had that this sugar Magnolia was the best version I've ever heard. Well, yeah, we, we had only touched on the first set there. The, this is the other show of the tour that's split in three. The second set, is just the jam suite dark star me and my uncle dark star warfrat sugar mags which is one of my favorite jam suites of the tour and they uh they emptied the tank so much i think it, they weren't expecting to split it in three but bob says we're gonna catch our breath for a few minutes and we'll come back is that dark star third longest ever just over 40 minutes not counting the me and my uncle uh the only ones longer are rotterdam from this tour which is the longest and uh, Cleveland 73. Um, but this one's one of the furthest out, most intense versions ever. Uh, maybe the scariest, most vicious tiger section of the tour. And 
the way that it just detours like deciding to take an exit on the highway at the last second into me and my uncle and then um at one point in part two this is gonna sound like the most (laughs) deadhead thing to say but i swear it sounds like it turns inside out like folding a cosmic sock (laughs) like like it literally turns inside out it's ridiculous yeah no honestly that's it is intense it's A lot of the times, like they have this kind of like motif and that appears throughout the entirety of the tour. I love it when they do it, especially in Dark Star. They do it in the other ones sometimes, but it sounds like reality itself is just breaking down. Yeah. And then they just put it back together again. Like they're like they smash a mirror with a hammer and then they zip it back up again. Mm -hmm. It's just absolutely insane. And then the way that they take that energy and turn it into that rock, like a raucous jubilant vibe, raucously jubilant vibe, even with not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad, not fade away. That's that, that Dusseldorf is one of my favorite versions of that. Me too. Um, it, yeah, yeah, you go. Well, I was going to say the part two of dark star to me, it sounds like it's like soaring at 10,000 feet, like a massive storm cloud. Picture picture yourself like driving in like a flat area, and you just got this massive storm cloud coming over you. And then Jerry reinstates the theme, like he wants to do the second verse, but then Bob overpowers him into Warfrat, which is a great emotive version with an outstanding outro. And then is into uh, Sugar Mags, which I would agree with you is a top five version all time. And I've it's been getting some love for best version ever, which I don't think is unreasonable to be honest. Yeah, no, that was just indescribable. That Warfrat was also very War Warfrat has been is a show saver, in my opinion. For the shows that aren't like up to par of like of the other ones, like four seven, Warfrat really boosted that for me true but just it's like pulling an ace out of the deck for these shows like whenever you hear like i always just get so pumped but at the same time just so mellowed out like this one was specifically just more melancholy more pretty more more sad like you know i read like a jane austen novel yeah it's very enchanting for sure. And I love how it almost always comes like deep in a dark star or other one. Cause it implies that you've had to travel some great distance to get to wherever August West's dock is. It's just, I don't know. It, it does something special. It's like, I, it's like a sing me back home. You know, like hearing to sing me back home out of a dark star, it also does like not to the same level, but it definitely has pieces of the same effect. Yeah. And uh, this show has the dog has no nose joke, as we mentioned earlier. It also has both a zippity doodah tease and a yellow rose of Texas tease by Keith before China Rider. Uh, and yeah, this show's just. 
a sucker punch from start to finish. Um, th- there's just a tangible exuberance to the playing throughout, which, um, you know, does occasionally lead to slightly loose moments, which is why I think we both kept it back from a perfect score. I went 99, you went 98.5, but uh, top five of the tour, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. I, it, it did that usually the loose vibes are controlled in a sense, but that's what kept me from putting it at a 99. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This one's like a, a runaway freight train pretty well in the best way. Yeah. Some like there are the runaway train shows are some of my favorite, like when it's done executed to perfection, like it's controlled, like there are barriers like keeping the train from falling off the tracks like a show that's not the dead but zeppelin's um 621.77 listen to this eddie mm-hmm. is one of is like first of all it's my first bootleg ever my first live show that i ever heard but um it's definitely one that just like ah they're gonna mess up ah they're gonna mess up like there's no way they can contain this, but they do. And mm. they, for Dusseldorf, the dead do that at a, most of the time. Yeah. Like 99% of the time. All right. April 26th in Frankfurt. Um, I think we both, this was one of the first ones that came to mind for, candidate for jerry's best night of the tour i gave it i gave it a 100 i find it really hard to choose between it and the two paris shows and rotterdam i have a you know give a slight edge to we'll talk about when we get there but those are um, my top five so we have the same top five dusseldorf this one the two paris and rotterdam no no you have the i have london yeah so Dusseldorf's your sixth. Yeah. Yeah, Dusseldorf is my sixth. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this one, well, it's long, first of all, three hours, 51 minutes, um, second longest of the tour for total runtime. Uh, Rotterdam is actually the longest for just music, if you cut out all the gaps between songs. Um this one has a 20 song first set and it's all like super tight. And then the second set, um, I mean, opens with a really punchy, good loving dire wolf. Then the jam suite kicks off with a scorching 14 minute truck and the very intense instrumental breaks pulled down slightly by the consistent lyrical flubs. Um, and then, uh, Billy takes a nice solo before they charge into a top 10, other one of all time, uh, you know, brilliantly diverse, creative and cohesive, um, some great extended quote unquote, like pure other one jamming where they're just ripping on the theme, um, crashes into a gorgeous comes a time, uh, what pulls this one? slightly ahead of Dusseldorf for me because these two are 
you know, right next to each other. And in Germany, I always kind of think of them in comparison to each other. Um, I, I prefer Dusseldorf slightly actually for a slight majority of the songs played both nights, but uh, Dusseldorf only has five songs that Frankfurt doesn't have. Frankfurt has 11 songs that Dusseldorf doesn't. And really, if you think of them, like I kind of think of them like cars, like racing and Frankfurt pulls away slightly when it gets to turn on your love light because it has like yet another epic at the end that Dusseldorf doesn't. And it's like one of the best love lights ever. Yeah. There's not much I really have to add. Um, I think this 426 is the perfect half and half show of that 72-ified sections of the 72-ified sections and the 71 just pure jam. Um, but yeah, Duffy Turn On Your Love Light was yeah. I really love that one. That was my that was my favorite song of the show and one of my favorite just song performances from the tour as well. Mm. But yeah, I mean, there's nothing really I have more to add. It's basically as powerful as Dusseldorf, just uh, a bit like reined in and like more leaning towards precise as opposed to controlled chaos. Um, So it depends what vibe you're more in the mood for. Um, Yeah, controlled energy compared to chaotic in a good way energy um and i think one other thing i noticed the the shows kind of take on the character of each country to an extent like and you notice that in the dead cast episodes where they're you know talking about the you know the culture of each place like the british shows sound like you know refined whatever and the the danish ones are kind of chill and like pleasant and then i find the german ones have kind of a harshness to them in a good way like they're all hamburg is a bit laid back by comparison but like they're they all have a bit more punchiness to them i find like dusseldorf frankfurt munich in particular uh but and even if you throw hamburg in there like those four have some of the the freakiest like tiger sections in there dark star or other one where it it sounds like kind of like mean-spirited like oh they're really trying to mess with people here i i honestly think the best way to put it is like classically medieval yeah um because you know i think of like medieval art for some of these like they're like if you if you're a fan of art and you love looking at like old texts like they're just kind of like those like the illustrations are just like surreal and violent but at the same time like whoa that's cool as hell like it's definitely fairy tale like which is more most apparent i think in 429 like of all the shows the german shows that kind of exude that german vibe i think hamburg's definitely has that the most of it yeah, well, let's we can go there right now. So, for Frankfurt, I was a hundred; you were ninety nine. So we basically agree. And then Hamburg, I gave a ninety one, 
What did you give it? Uh, 92. Okay, so we basically agree again. Um, now, in the uh, so first of all, it opens with playing in the band for the first time ever, which they would only do seven times total out of 600 plays. This show, Rotterdam, uh, two weeks later, and then three times in September of 82, once in December 86, and once in July 89. So very unique for that. Um, and it's a, a very elegant playing in the band that sets the tone for a chill, cool evening. I find this show has a a nice laid back bluesy vibe throughout, um, which suits most of the songs that they play. Excellent. Good loving. Um, but the, the real highlight here is the, the dark star sugar mags caution, particularly dark star. Um, one of the, um, one of the most distinct, you know, vibes to a dark star that you can pick up right away. Uh, I've always thought it sounds really earthy, like a, you know, if dark star is usually an acid trip, this one's a mushroom trip. Uh, it sounds like wandering off in the forest when you're on a camping trip and, you know, getting spooked, the beautifully melodic pre-verse is like you first wandering out at sunset and then really freaky tiger is like you're freaking out lost in the woods. And then um, when they uh, like, just when you can't take it anymore, sugar mags rises defiantly from the madness. And it's like stumbling upon your friends sitting around the campfire on the beach. Um, and I learned on the dead cast that uh, they visited the black forest on their day off on the 27th, including an abandoned monastery that had been empty since part of the steeple collapsed on the remaining monks hundreds of years ago. So I think when you, when you learn that they did that on their time off between Frankfurt and this show, it makes sense that that experience would inform the next dark star that they played. Yeah. Um, that dark star is one of my favorites across the board, not even just from this tour, just in general, because of that storytelling vibe. Um, I said it was kind of gothic and that it was a musical uh, retelling of a Brothers Grimm story, um, which literally it's like, you know, Hansel and Gretel, but like a, but definitely like one of the, it's like a Disneyified Brothers Grimm story that doesn't have the dark ending that the classical ones have. Yeah, I was going to say Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. But, you know, I think, and I know we disagree on what I'm going to say, but I really, 525's Uncle John's Band has Jerry's best solo, and I think it's channels the studio version. But this one was just, it fit the the vibe perfectly. I, it, I said it fit like a Lego piece, you know, like that, just taking it all back to that campfire mellow, just like, it sounds like when they're playing uncle John's band, like they're sitting around a campfire, just like singing all together, just bringing it all back home into one. Oh, it totally fits. Yeah. I just, yeah. The way that they keep it low throughout the show but they 
just like that constant mellow, that mellow baseline, that threshold, mm-hmm. um, challenged by the darkness of the dark star and even the caution, um, just make for a great total overall vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like there are a handful of other shows on the tour that are also like more relaxed, but not in the same way as this one. This one sounds like enjoying a cigar and a drink with a close friend in the backyard. Or one person on Heady Version said, it sounds like they're jamming in the basement as much as it does a concert, uh, which I think is cool for a change. It's a nice one to to catch your breath with it uh, falling between the epic and intense ones in Dusseldorf and Frankfurt before it and Paris and beyond after it. Yeah. And um, one last thing I have to say about the mellow, it's a different kind of mellow than the other ones, as you said, because the other mellow shows that come after this one kind of have that hot mellow 73 vibe. Yeah. Instead. This is like the, the 1970 mellow almost with those great acoustic sets and stuff. Yeah, like Harper College, you know, like 5-2, you know, mm-hmm. it's definitely something like that. Like it, like an acoustic set belongs in Hamburg. Mm-hmm. All right. Then we get to the Paris shows. I, we both gave the first night a 100. Um, here, you can take the lead on this one. Oh, awesome. All right. Um. Do you remember how I said with 414 or was it 16, how it had that consistency that didn't do the show justice because they focused on the wrong vibe? Yes. This one is where they find the right vibe and they run with it to where there is no um, differentiating between how damn good one song is versus another because they just it's 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 in top form um i think playing in the band was a lot like the night before it was calming but yet still mad enough to be a 72 playing in the band um and this was the first show that i noticed that they had the good love and transition into the wild jamming like they had it down like that was the like the first time where it just like it switched and you didn't even know it you know but this show, I'm going to jump to later in it. Um, actually, before I do that, um, though all dead songs are different, um, these there. This show had little additives that are completely out of nowhere. Like the opening of, of "Good Lovin'" was different, and the little change in ending to Casey Jones. Like it's just the way that they slightly changed their already in in place changes like it just gave it a whole new aura but that second set um had my favorite rainbow on rose from the the um from the tour um phil's insane bass drops on the other one but trucking into the other one into drums back into the other one back into me and bobby or into me and bobby mcgee then the other one for a third time and closing out the suite with Wharf Rat was my favorite sequence of the entire tour. And yeah. I know we kind of had 
our different thoughts on how high we rank to the other one. And I think this one is so different because it is a true, like it's a triple decker sandwich. Like it's, I don't remember what cartoon is from, maybe it's from arch or something, but there's a sandwich called a Dagwood and it's like wicked high. It's got like 16 pieces of bread just stacked to the ceiling. And that's what this really was, you know, um, the three parts of the other one, but the main the main section, the middle one between drums and me and Bobby McGee really just took it brilliantly to the sky. You know, I, it's, it's a very much so a throwback, the other one. And one of the reasons why this tour is so, I think, different than if they had toured the, the States is because they are showcasing who the dead are who the dead were, what the dead have become, where they're going. And so they have to bring some of that primal deadness into the modern day to show like, oh, that we we could we do everything, you know. Mm. This is one of the peak moments of the collective dead from the past seven years of their existence, from the warlocks to the Grateful Dead in Europe. And I think that this whole suite just perfectly emphasizes every little era. Yeah. I just, I loved it. I, I loved it. Yeah. No, I, uh, I agree. And I, I, I'll concede that this show probably is the most sensible pick for best of the tour. I have my personal reasons why I might why I give Rotterdam the slight edge and why I might slightly prefer the following night in Paris. But um yeah, I mean I wrote way more about this show than the ones preceding it as much as I love them. Um basically I was if I had to describe the Paris shows in one word, it would be exquisite. I think the refinement of the city really rubbed off on them this show is the uber energetic version of that wired creative and pristine for its entire three hours 41 minutes um and then the the next night is like the the laid back version of that exquisite um i think this show is probably the the best combination on the tour of fun warm vibes energy precision and an epic set list frankfurt would probably be the closest in as far as having all four of those but i don't think it feels as fun which isn't necessarily a requirement but it feels more like we're here to kick your ass and they do but this one is like a real collaborative exchange between them and the crowd and uh they mentioned in the dead cast how there was a decently burgeoning community of deadheads in Paris. And David Lemieux said he, uh, he kind of gets the feel that these shows were like the Olympia was a very hip venue. And between that and having lots of like decently educated deadheads, these shows kind of feel more like two nights at the Fillmore East in New York, as much as they do. Like you, you have that, that energy to it combined with, like the Europe aspect and the the refinement of it being in Paris. Yeah, and I think 
that's what the sweet does best. You know, I think sometimes um, shows can be one uh, like linear piece where they kind of go. So like they start somewhere with the opening song and they end somewhere completely different. Mm -hmm. But I think that the truck, that, that sweet, the truck and the other one drums, the other one, um, the other one in Warfrat kind of just overemphasized the first set on that. We're going up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. We're going to give you every little piece of dead that we can because you guys deserve it. And we feel more at home. You yeah. know, it becomes that home away from home deal, which we don't really get at all. Except on um, the, I'd say the London shows because they, yeah, bookended it. They were familiar with the city by then, so I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, this other one might be my favorite ever. I, well, I'd probably say like this, and then pick like Feb thirteen seventy for like a more primal, like straight other one. But this one is just so astonishing and jazzy. Uh, one guy on Hetty just said this other one's out of the cosmos. I was like, yep, that about sums it up. Um, and it, see what you think of this analogy. I kind of view it like, okay, you're cruising along, like strutting the streets of Paris in trucking. And then the transition is so smooth. It's like slipping through a wormhole. Like all of a sudden somebody snapped your fingers and you're like way out there. And then, but the whole thing, it's like, it takes place in an alternate like universe or an alternate place on the space time continuum. But while you're still like walking around Paris, it's like you've slipped through this wormhole and you're like the, you would, it's like a virtual reality thing. Kind of like you're, you're in this alternate universe, but you're still just, it's all this whole dance has been taking place all around you and you just couldn't see it. I got one word for you, my friend, the catacombs. Okay. That's where it goes. You know, like you just, even though you're still, you're, you're still in the same place in the same time, listening to the same thing. You are completely and totally underground surrounded by that, they're so dead. They're alive. Like you can just feel yeah. everything going on around you. It's a piece of living history that you're going through. Yeah. To me, the, the patient like contemplative intro where they're kind of thumb wrestling, like teasing the theme. Uh, it sounds like the musical equivalent of tilting your head to examine a painting at the Louvre. Yeah. Yeah. Which they did visit uh, on their day off before the shows. So, or some of them did at least. And of course, this show, no coincidence, it has several songs that made it onto the original Europe 72 album Jack Straw, Tennessee Jed, uh, China Rider, which is one of the best versions ever. And uh, I'm not sure if there's one more. Um, that I may be forgetting. Uh, forgive me if so, everyone. But uh, anyway, yeah. 
Um, so then the second night in Paris, I also gave a 100. You said you did 99. Yeah. Um, do you want me to? Um, sh- sure. Yeah. Or yeah. Okay. Um, I think it had the same isness to it, but to a lesser degree. Um, Do you want to just explain isness for the oh, listeners yeah. who might not know it's, what we mean? Uh, you know, it is this, it's, it's uh, right out of the doors of perception, you know, um, if you read Aldous Huxley's book. Um, it's kind of like just it at a certain level, like it's conscious. It, it just is, you know, like the, it, 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 yeah, it's like that next level of the music plays the band. Like it sounds so natural and like not striving for it just like flows out of them. Yeah. They're very knowledgeable about who they are, what they are and how they're going to play it, how they're going to do it. And I think that um, it's less idiosyncratic than the night before, except for that dark star and the good love in which I liked more than the one at uh, five three, I also really love the greatest story ever told opener. That's one of my favorite openers from this uh, tour. But mm-hmm. give, give the reins back to <laughs> to you. To me, the um, I think I mentioned to you how um, that guy Howard uh, Weiner wrote the the book Europe 72 revisited that came out in March, which I ordered. And he talks about this uh, notion of the, the first set songs, especially the, the new batch, like your Tennessee Jed, uh, sugary Jack straw, all those songs, brown eyed women. Um, they all kind of paint a picture of old weird America. And um, I think this first set, somehow they just really nailed the sequencing i found this first set had such a cinematic quality to it um and i got that old weird america feeling from this first set especially um you know with with studio albums we talk about the fourth wall and how it's usually best not to break it in that context um you know, like when there's a, a spoken word section or the, a line that says, you know, singing this song, that would be like breaking the fourth wall in a musical context, right? Yeah. Um, but it's it's typically assumed that it's already broken, at least to some extent, in the live setting. Um, but somehow, because like you know, the, the singer will ad lib like plant saying, "Does anyone remember laughter in Stairway?" things like that that break the fourth wall somehow in this first set at the second Paris show it's like they created a fourth wall of sorts wherein it feels less like you're listening to a concert and more like you're watching an old western movie kind of like uh the experience you can have when you're listening to American Beauty uh and I think this is due to three factors little between song banter or tuning pauses the set list order 
um, the spontaneity of their set list structure is one of the things we deadheads love most about them, but you do sacrifice the theatrical quality of a set list with a more calculated sequence. You know, sometimes it does sound like a bunch of songs slapped together in a random order while they're up there, which it was, especially the first set. Um, and particularly in these 72 to 74 years when they're playing 25, 30 songs a night, I noticed that more in 73, 74, sometimes it's just obvious that like, okay, we have this huge songbook. We know we're going to be here for four hours. It's just have at her and like pulling songs out of a hat. Um, but here at the second Paris show, they just happen upon an order that works so well, you'd think it was planned. And then the third factor, the playing itself, I th as you're saying with the isness, I think it has that Cornell inertia and, and that, uh, that Feb 1370 Fillmore East very dosed feeling of like Zen, like focus and calm. The chemistry is telepathic. The presence is off the charts. The execution is so precise. It sounds effortless. Um, it really sounds like 14 studio versions in a good way. It kind of like floats. Um, and then I've seen this second set get some love for like best second set ever kicking off with that 23 minute good love. And that could be best of the tour. Um, the, the fourth wall is broken by the power issue to some of the mics briefly at the start of next time you see me, uh, which elicits some laughter when Bob attempts to explain in French what's going on. Um, but then uh, I think Jack's draw is as good as the night before the one that made it onto the album. Um, Dark star is an exquisite jazzy odyssey. It gets much further out than you'd expect from its refined odor appearance, similar to the other one from the night before in that regard. Uh, but it gets much spookier um really seamlessly drifts down 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 to the bottom of the black hole and we get the second verse uh one of only three times in 72 march 23rd new york and july 26th portland for the others and then one of the best sugar mags ever the one on europe 72 just slightly slower than most which allows for a really deep groove and great vocals and i love the urgent climax of jerry's solo um my pick for best ever sing me back home this show's vibe and the slightly more relaxed tempos are perfect for this song and the vocals are just sublime um i think this one this uncle john's band is the the best of the other than 525 which is you know more jammed out and part of a great sequence i think this one's the it's like sweet very well sung just the right amount of jamming so as not to detract from the the beauty of the songwriting uh, i believe you and i agreed that this show had the best going down the road feeling bad yes and um one thing i want to add before you uh, continue on is i love going on their own feeling bad when it's just like they just open with it like it's just from going on the road feeling bad into not fade away and yeah. it's like because jerry does the uh the melody on 
like because you can tell like they don't normally do that going into um just not fade away going down the road not fade away but whenever they open it just going down the road jerry does that and it's, it's just absolutely brilliant like i love it like it's just so like it's a completely different entity yeah. when it's not sandwiched yeah this one just sounds completely effortless um and they wrap it up with one of the most ballistic coked up one more saturday nights um i i just think this show is perhaps the goldilocks show uh i said the first night has the best like combination of the precision the energy the um the vibes and the the epic set list this one definitely isn't quite as energetic but it it's not chill it's just that everything's just right it's more deady yeah amazing vibes one of the most unique set lists of the tour uh just compared to a few three years ago i i calculated like uniqueness scores just compared to the other shows of the tour and this show has the most unique set list of the tour relative to the rest of the tour um for total points the highest average per song was the second night at the lyceum but you know because it's the second night in a row in the same place they shake it up a fair bit and because the first night had a lot of usual suspects for this tour uh this show like i think it's one of the few without black-throated wind one of the few without trucking not that those are songs i'm like rooting to not have but it makes room for other stuff right um and the show is tied with Rotterdam for the most Pigpen songs with seven. Yeah, and Pig it's a great Pen, night for him. Um, this show, I think, is a uh, precursor to the next one because Pigpen's. This is like the meat of the tour. Like, if we're just gonna take a step back from. Um, from going individually like for me like from rotter or from five three on like i it goes a hundred ninety nine ninety seven ninety eight ninety nine and then a break of it and then it goes into the london shows like we are at the meat and like meat and potatoes of it because pig really this night, five seven, Bickershaw and five eleven, Rotterdam are three like, like they're some of the best pig performances. Oh, absolutely! He just totally kicks it up a to- like a, a another notch, like not even just a little bit, just like it's it's a whole different level of energy and soul that he's bringing to the table. Um, starting at that second night in Paris. <clears throat> yeah, I kind of view the peak as the middle eight from Dusseldorf through Rotterdam. Hamburg's like the kind of outlier in there, but it goes for me. It, that's that's 99, 100, 91, 100, 100, 97, 98, 100. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I know I'm going to be jumping the gun even further here, but Luxembourg could have totally. I feel like they missed an opportunity with Luxembourg. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, yeah, so I think that's probably 
enough on the second night in Paris, but just overall the Paris shows right in the middle of the tour. Um, they're as good as any, they're probably the, the cleanest of the tour. Um, in terms of just, you know, exquisitely executed. And, uh, even if you could argue like you like the peaks of a different one, slightly higher, these two are pretty spotless. Also, I want to add that this is the only like this is the only back to back, like wickedly highly rated, um, like sequence of shows. Like um, five for you, like or for me, I had ninety nine and a hundred or a hundred for five three, ninety nine for five four. But like like five twenty five, I gave a ninety four, and five twenty six, I gave it a hundred. Even the opening. Four seven with an eighty two and then four eight with a um with a ninety six like it's the fact that they are that consistent in the pe- period of twenty four hours is just maddening. Well, I would put I would put Amsterdam and Rotterdam right there too because I oh, yeah, I, ha- right. I have yeah. those at ninety eight a hundred. I have that at ninety nine ninety eight. Yep, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What? Well, yeah. So. They uh, they had some, I think I told you, so at this point in the tour, they, they were supposed to, the Lille show was supposed to be May 5th, but a disgruntled uh, Parisian who thought that the shows should have been free uh, was hassling them outside their hotel afterward, and one of them dropped an ice cream cone off the balcony and it ruined his velvet jacket, which... Um, inspired the album's cover at least in part uh but then the as a result the guy peed in the gas tank of their equipment truck so it broke down on the way to Lille, and they had to cancel anyhow they barely made the last ferry that would get them to bickershaw in time or at least the the band might have flew but the the crew like got the last ferry just barely so they get to the bickershaw festival which is up kind of near Manchester, Liverpool area. It was, they were closing the festival on Sunday evening. It was a cold, rainy, muddy weekend, but the sun came up just as they were beginning their uh, nearly four hour set comes up, but like just a minute shy of that. But obviously when you count, if you count the intermission, if you were sitting there, it was over four hours. Um, in terms of actual music, it's not the longest because there's some longer gaps between songs, but it's a long show. They pull out all the big guns set list wise. It has it's the only 72 show with both Dark Star and Good Love and, or, and uh, the other one rather it has both Good Love and Turn On Your Love Light. So you've got what were their big four at this time. All four of them played here. Um, it was Bill's 26th birthday. Uh, you know, it has the vibes you would expect from the lone festival gig of the tour. Um, it's powerful. It has its rough around the edges moments and technical difficulties, but um, you can tell that they're they're psyched. They knew it was a big deal. It was by far the biggest crowd they played to on the tour. Um, it paid them, I think six times as much as the other shows. Um, 
their guarantee for it was like six times what it was for each of the others. Uh, they were asked by the festival organizers to play a set list that was representative of their entire career to that point. And I think they, they obliged it's uh, up there with those, those two German shows for the, the ones that are really powerful sounding. It has more rough around the edges spots than I remembered upon listening closely this year, but still a great showing in front of 60,000 people. I think that this show is a def- definitely a case of uh, what could have been. I think those technical difficulties really blemish and otherwise top contender because i really love this show i love that truck into open like i like that that was so good i showed my mom (laughs) like well they do start to frustrate you sometimes as a musician too when you're like oh we're still dealing with this buzzing sound yeah like it's just i don't know and then um sugar magnolia aside from the vocal flub kind of was just another it was just a basic basic Europe 72 rendition mm-hmm. in quotations like it didn't right which wasn't, means same thing with singing back home you know like it, some of them they just didn't bring up or it's not that they didn't bring it up it's just that just that they left it at their foundation mm-hmm. to a certain extent yeah and the jam suite um dark star is on pace to be like an all-time great version. It's an excellent 15-minute preverse that I've seen described as being like going through a tunnel. But then it gets cut off at 19, just under 20 minutes, like pretty much right after the first verse. And they don't end up coming back to it. And uh they uh go into drums and then the other one, which the other one um it slipped a bit in my rankings this year compared to previously because it does have a more primal sound, like sounding more like a 6970 version at the bookends, like the thematic jamming portions. But in the middle, it actually has like 13 minutes without Billy when it's basically just Jerry, Bob and Phil, like doing that spacey, like sounding like submarines pinging stuff to each other. Yeah, um, I called it a space shuttle. And um, definitely to the 69th thing, I think the opening, closing thematic bookends, as you said, um, definitely were heightened by that kind of wee thing coming from pigs at uh, Oregon. Like, yeah, it, yeah. like, whenever, I swear to God, I definitely think that the other one would be my favorite, like, live dead song, because it's just whenever they captured like the ultimate part of that theme it's just like the coolest thing ever like it's just and they did that definitely at Pickershaw yeah I agree Pig's Organ is a big part of that they said in the in the Deadcast episode that Billy would have had time to uh, like scoot across the field to the pub across the street have a pint and come back with this 13 minute gap. I don't know if he is pulling a, a Robert plant during Moby Dick for his birthday, but 
he was definitely. Honestly, <laughs> can, Bill Kreisman would have just sat there, put his legs up on his kit, and just enjoyed it. Probably. Um, so yeah, basically for this show, um, I applaud them for putting on such a long show for the people who'd suffered through the cold rain and mud all week. Um, the pictures show Pigpen wearing a big sweater and mittens. So they were not performing in ideal conditions, even though the sun came out when they started. Uh, and it's hard to play in the cold when your fingers get cold, you lose a lot of dexterity and stuff. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, uh, qu- quick shout out to Phil's sweater. Yeah. They all got those Danish sweaters, uh, but when, well, when they're in Denmark, but you see pictures of Phil and his more than the others. Um, yeah, but, like the technical difficulties can be mildly distracting at times. The buzzing, crackling sound during songs, longer pauses in between songs caused by those kind of break the flow a bit. Um, it's a minor quibble though. Like the banter is fun and it gives an authentic festival vibe, but it it's definitely a stark contrast to the second night in Paris, the show before this, this one definitely feels like you're listening to a concert. It's not that, that cinematic quality. Yeah. It's definitely has that festival. Fairground type deal to it. Yeah. Which is a great feel to have. I mean, it's it it I its authenticity is definitely more like solid. Mm. We uh, we both went ninety seven on this, right? Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, our margin of error is like <laughs> we agree on like everything. Uh, but. Oh, I was just going to say that. Why the hell did you have me on if we agree all the time? <laughs> Schmuck. Um, <laughs> anyhow. <laughs> um, so May 10th, back on the continent in Amsterdam at the Concert Gebouw, a beautiful venue. Um, and the uh, by the sounds of it, at the time, like Holland was a really kind of hip futuristic place. And this, it was the, uh, the start of the so-called hippie trail where you could, uh, you could buy and sell like Volkswagen vans right on the street in Amsterdam and just drive as far as you want into like Asia, like, you know, through Pakistan and all the way to, you know, Thailand if you want or whatever. And that kind of ran through the seventies until the, Iranian revolution uh, cut it off but um, so you had a, a blossoming hippie subculture there um, you had uh, obviously legalized weed and you know more progressive way of looking at that sort of thing and uh, it just sounds like it was a really cool place and the dead really liked the vibe of it this venue was really pretty has the kind of windows along the top and i do get that that feel in the the first part of the first set uh, bob even comments after bertha which is very nice uh although jerry forgets or doesn't sing 
roughly an entire verse, but his solo is really good. And then Bob says, as the sun sinks slowly in the West, we're going to do a song about the great American West before a uh, kind of loose in the 73 way, me and my uncle, um, it, the, uh, I think the show must've started sometime around sunset and the beginning of the first set sounds like the, the last rays of sunlight kind of peeking in the windows over top of them, uh, which I think lends that hot, mellow 73 feel where maybe it, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, it's a particular vibe. I used to think like, Oh, they sound kind of off and it's too chill here, but this year it really clicked for me. I like, no, it's just nice and different. And it's like, yeah. this, this show definitely has that 73 hot mellow. Different. Um, is definitely the word that I use for this one. Um, I said I used water to like, to analyze this. Like, they went from like they'd go from songs that were like a crashing waterfall to just still water. Um, and one of the things that I really loved about the show was this was, I think Keith's best show. And it really showed in the other one. And it, because at a certain point in the middle, it just had like, like a computer. And that was especially different by Keith's playing. Um, and also, at the end of the second set, near the end, uh, the not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad, not fade away, um, was less classic rock and roll than it was jammy. Mm-hmm. Like, it was very much so, like, just more Jerry-oriented um, along the lines of how the going down the road, feeling bad sounds when it's just opening with it like there's no pre cursor of not fade away like it's just more it's very rhythm oriented and mm-hmm. bill and keith really click the show yeah and and i noticed some people on heady commenting that jerry's tone is particularly like spot on at this show yeah and no I, I definitely I agree. agree i definitely agree because there are certain shows like this, this, this show is very interesting because usually when all the band members are like at their best, like it turns into one cohesive thing, like a unitary thing. But with this show, it's more like you could totally hear everyone's individual contributions at different points of this, of the show. Like, yeah everyone has a light shining on them for a brief period of time. And it's like, I, I this, the, the, that hot mellow. And I think the me and Bobby McGee was also the best of the tour from this one. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. Uh, somebody said on Hetty that, you know, with it arriving uh, 34 minutes into this like far out other one, uh, it's like turning on the radio in the spaceship's cockpit and here's this cowboy <laughs> song from back home. Yeah. Yep. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like a guardians of the galaxy. Yeah. And uh, I think um, as you, you mentioned your, your great thought about how playing in the band is like a litmus test on this tour where you can 
you can get the vibes of the whole show just from listening to the playing. This one is mellower and dreamier than most and also a bit more patient. Not that the others are rushed, but this one takes its sweet time and is better for it, I think. I definitely agree. Um, especially at the beginning of the tour. Um, when it was definitely more 72 oriented because as the tour goes on, I noticed that the music itself becomes more timeless and um, just kind of like less experimental in a sense and more like um, like they keep to the vibe of their songs. But with this plan in the band, the way that it just doesn't jump in, like Usually I describe the plan of the bands as like whirlwinds of tone and wah-wah and just insane, just circle. Like in my head, I picture like you're just going in circles, like just these, like an insane tornado of music. But like instead of a tornado, it's like a hot tub, you know? Yeah. Like like it's just, you're chilling. And and that's, and it does what um, 429, like, doesn't do which is kind of like add that edge like though it may be mellow and chill it still has an edge to it oh totally like even with that jed yeah dude that jed was one of the best i specifically the ending of it like it, it like everything rises with this show yeah um and i would say I would say like what I was further to what I was saying about the, the shows kind of taking on the characteristics of the country that they're in. I find these two Dutch shows to be the, the most uh, like kind of futuristic and experimental. It, you know, like in a, in a, in a chill way. No, it, I, in that, not, you don't mean musically. You just, do you just mean by the vibe? that kind of comes off because honestly like the more experimental shows came earlier and i really think that the german shows are more out there but if you if you mean just like directionally like vibe wise i can agree with that but i don't really remember these being yeah the german ones are like more aggressively experimental but these ones are more like conceptually experimental. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. 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 You know, like German ones, the mad scientists and these ones are just like, Oh, what if we do this? Yeah. Um, like this other one, um, it's kind of a halfway point between the Paris and Frankfurt ones. Like it has the exquisite jazzy refinement of Paris, but also goes further out and feels a bit more, deep space like frankfurt yeah especially at the computer part yeah yeah that was we both noticed that at one point it sounds (laughs) it sounds really digital at one point which is kind of what i was getting at with the being more futuristic and experimental these two dutch shows yeah okay then yeah i agree with that and we both gave this a 98 right correct so this one was a big, uh, made a big jump compared to, I don't know why I was always so much lower on it in the past. I feel like it ranked around 12th before and I had it 
seventh now, could easily be sixth. Yeah, I mean, I had it um, seventh. Okay, yeah, so we're right on. Um, okay, so Rotterdam, May 11th, uh, about an hour away from Amsterdam. A very pretty venue as well, but much more modern, whereas the, the one in Amsterdam is like this old Baroque looking like very ornate place. And the, the Rotterdam venue is super modern, uh, like purple and wood, uh, great acoustics, apparently. Um, it's the longest show of the tour when you cut out all time between songs. Um, it was crazy. I did the math. So the total runtime is three hours, 49 minutes. And the total music time is three hours, 41 minutes. There's only eight minutes of like between song time in an almost four hour show. That's insane. Yeah. You think they breathed? I know. Like the, the, that opens with playing in the band like Hamburg did, but this one is uh it it had you sense that it factor from the start where you can tell it's going to be one of those nights and you can tell that they're eager to get like far out tonight um the the rest of the first set is very good there's that adventurousness and like experimentation creeps in even in songs like mr charlie jerry toys with his riffing and the solo a lot yeah i noted that one as well uh jerry seems to be singing extra enthusiastically all over the place like sugary pays attention to each syllable uh deal you can tell from his opening costs a lot to win that like oh he's into this one one of the best black-throated wins, I think, strikes the right balance between sweet and biting. It has a good drive to it. I think that for a lot of the shows, or I mean, a lot of the songs here, actually, like um, Bobby's Cowboy songs, like uh, El Paso, like it, it was definitely more Southwest. Like it had that definitely Southwestern feel to it, like more homely. And I also said it was like lower. Like it was like, because normally the El Pasos, they kind of have like a bounce to it. Like it's kind of, this one was further away than Mexicali blues than it normally is. Yeah. Because, you know, those two are like a, like a pendulum, you know, mm-hmm. but it's definitely like further away. And even like Tennessee Jed, me and my uncle, like bring it on down the line, which pig pen on that one was nuts. Yeah. But um, they're more like meaningful, emotive and enthusiastic. I think leads into that kind of like just moment momentary just feel like they are like crying out these stories that they've been meaning to tell Mm -hmm. i just i love it yeah speaking of mexicali i thought this one was excellent somebody someone on heady wrote it sounds like keith has 20 fingers oh yeah i mean the way that they specifically embellish and it's weird because the people who you think should embellish on certain songs don't and you're just like 
what? Like, why is Keith and Mexicali lose? Like, no, that's a Jerry song. Or he runs away with it. Or bring it on down the line. Like, why the hell is Pigpen just going off? And it and I think it hurts me too, which is one of my favorite pig Pigpen songs. Like, normally that's like a blues band deal, but Jerry on that one was phenomenal. Like he, I wrote he he was more Elmore than he was Jerry. Mm-hmm. Like, I I love that one. I definitely yeah. think it's more like everything is so fine tuned and painted. Like, I don't know. Also, this is just overall one of my favorite Bobby shows. Yeah. Yeah. His rhythm playing throughout, he really steps it up. Um, I think this, yeah, yeah. This Jack Straw is really pretty, which makes it seven shows in a row with a great Jack Straw. And I think this one actually could be the best of the bunch. I can see that. Uh, Good Lovin', I think, is one of the coolest versions of the tour. It's the first one where Jerry plays pig's organ during the verses. Um, the jam is very slinky and um, pig's delivery of the rap is so like cool and nonchalant. It's like, he's telling you a story just like sitting there having a cigar with you or something. Not like he's singing it to you from the stage. Um, yeah. Or and, you're like, you're at a bar or something and you yeah. just met him or something. Yeah, exactly. And and he throws in unique stuff too, like his friend's girl learned these tricks on the street, and then his his girl damn near busts him upside the head when he tries them. And then you're left wondering, like, oh geez, what are these tricks? And then um he uh and then the way he caps it off by saying, like, and there was a long, sweet, loving confrontation. Yes, <laughs> just oh like his God, little yeah. like mic drop, and then they yeah. charge back into the verse. One, this jam is sweet. Dark star drums, dark star sugar mags, caution trucking was. And I count Uncle John's band because they don't really come up for Do air, but oh. yeah, I could see. All right. We'll add Uncle John's. We'll add Uncle John's fan. All right. All right. But um, while I'm going to start with caution because it goes with what I said before about Bobby. He did this muted strum thing that went along perfectly. And I was just, it was so stark because that's, I think, Bobby, Bobby and Bill are what makes caution. And I think the fact that they were both just on it really brought it up to almost peak. I don't think it's the best one, but I think it's definitely a top three of the tour. But mm-hmm. that Dark Star, man, like like another half Bobby show, but this was like Keith also made this one. I, I just I called it the, uh, an adventure, total adventure into delirium. You know, like they really kind of went. Oh, yeah, dude. When I talk about the it's the furthest out moment of the tour, when I say the the these two Dutch shows are like the most futuristic experimental experimental, it's like the peak of that. It's 
the longest, most complex version ever, 48 minutes long, legitimately powerful enough to induce an out-of-body experience while sober. It's happened to me and others I know. It's just, I don't know, whenever, because usually when I think of like Dark Star, I think of kind of Jerry and Phil and the band, rest of the band in the middle. Mm-hmm. But this one, which was driven by, as I said, Bobby and Keith, like because of their role in the band, they kind of almost reverse things where Keith's rhythm or Keith's keys are like they they take the role of drums as as like a in a certain way and Bobby's rhythm playing is almost like he's leading with it which is what I think gets it out there so complex or in, in such a complex manner because they're just messing with the rhythm and the timing and just kind of like just I don't know like the way that they get there it's such an interesting vehicle it really is mm-hmm. and let's not forget the uh the second set opens with the first morning due of the tour first since august 6 71 actually snapping a streak of 59 shows and uh, that makes it keith's first due uh i think it's a really stunning one with really emotional vocals sadly bob breaks a string just as the final jam is peaking and they have to cut it off. I don't think it detracts too much, but it could be like goat contender without that. See, uh, the, the problem I have with that morning do maybe I'm just a, uh, a snob for Cornell, but whenever I think of morning do, I think of it like coming out of like an insane, like, head trip and the fact that it's op it it starts or its placement is the opening of the second set just kind of like throws me off um but yeah otherwise it was beautiful it was like a just like a sunrise you know yeah. like it and it's like their first set was one day the sun had set casey jones and then boom Morning Dew, here we go. Add it yeah. again. Yeah, well, it's funny how it lets you know, like, okay, we're we're going all the way out there in this set. But then they do uh, five standalone songs between that and starting the jam suite that are all more earthbound ones, like Me and My Uncle, which is great. Probably the definitive Two Souls the El Paso, which we talked about, a rare second set Tennessee Jed and a hell of a Jed at that. I think it can hold its own with Paris for best of the tour. I also Sol- think I, I literally wrote in my notes a rare yeah. when, ab- about Tennessee Jed being in the <laughs> second set. Yeah. Like the solo has a really structured build uh, and it feels a tad longer than most others on the tour. And his he had like that popping thing going on with his tone. Like it, 
like it's very staccato almost the way that he structured it which i loved Mm -hmm. um definitely one of my favorite and i love how solos yeah next time you see me as the setup song for dark star in contrast to using Jackstraw in that role, like they did in Paris and Bakershaw, which is kind of a like starting to trip song, like eases you in. Next time you see me is like a complete red herring. It's like as opposite to Dark Star as you can get. So it leaves you like totally unsuspecting and then boom. Yeah, I mean, that's just... Uh, to quote George Bush, strategery with your set list right there, you know, toying with everyone seeing, you know, it's like a a red herring, yes, but if you look back at the set list, you're like, all right, yeah, that that makes sense how they yeah. did that, and it's cool as hell. Yeah. Well, and this, and so then we get to the the jam suite, which is 88 minutes long, uh, one of the longest they ever did, by far the longest of the tour. The last night in London is the only other one that even hits 70 minutes. It's like 70 right on Frankfurt's is like 67. So, um, you know, it's the, it's the longest show of the tour in terms of like total music time. And it still has, and it's jam suite still takes up the highest percentage of the total runtime on the tour. So yeah. Um, I guess we should keep rolling, but like, um, probably Pigpen's best night of the tour. Uh, seven lead vocals, great organ and percussion contributions throughout. Um, it's not exactly like perfect or spotless. The Paris shows would be closer to that, but it combines those unique and special set list factors that we mentioned with creative and ambitious playing. And to me, with Rotterdam, you get the sense that they're pushing themselves and the songs to the brink, particularly in the jam suite, which I love. Like when Billy taps out at the end of trucking, you can tell Jerry's like wanting to really go off on the second break and Billy crashes it to a halt. Like, no, I'm dying here, man. That's enough. It's like, okay, they finally got there. They got to the end of themselves and fully emptied the tank. Yeah. And, you know, I think that really shows with where the tour goes, you know, because with Lil, um, it's like, I don't even know how to, how would you describe Lil? Because I gave it a 95, you know. I gave it a 91. Um, I enjoyed it more this year than I have previously. Um, I think it, uh, it, like it, and this is where what we were saying about the controlling your variables and, and all of that, the fact that I'm always listening to it right after Rotterdam and the, the rest of the, the middle eight, that crazy stretch you know, before it, um, it's kind of bound to feel like a bit of a letdown, but when you try to just appreciate it on its own merits it is still very good um the first set does seem to get off to a somewhat cooler start uh no no mistakes really uh but just lacking a bit of that sparkle um 
like the second Paris and Amsterdam start chill as well, but in a different way. And they definitely have that sparkle, especially Paris. But in this case, um, you know, having seen pictures of the the somewhat sparse crowd, perhaps that and the weather, because uh, it was cold as well, um, conspired to cause a slight delay in them really kicking into gear. But when you listen to the the episode about this show on the Deadcast, um, you know, people, it was a free concert in the park on like a Saturday afternoon. So people slowly kind of wandered in and apparently it just looked like a, a French expressionist painting and Phil, especially it was like a real highlight for him because he is into like art and stuff. And he said, it looked like they were just playing in a Monet, but at first when it was still like filling in um, they're during that tuning wrap before they start, when they're trying to get the monitors to work, uh, Phil says they were once approached to appear in a movie where they would play to an audience of parked cars and he says, I now see the humor in that. So apparently they set up the stage in like a parking lot at the park. Oh my God. <laughs> I think this is Phil's best show. Really? I do. And let me tell you why. Literally, the moment that I started this show, or the moment that the show started, you know, they have that like that, that the rap at the beginning gold yeah but um when they started with bertha i was like phil what where is this coming from man like it just kind of like he had this like weird like drop bounce thing coming into it i'm like this is bertha bro it's the first song like i'm here for it because i've phil's contributions to the band like normally like you listen to like a band and sometimes their their bass playing or the bass player is like kind of subpar, but Phil Lesh is my favorite bassist because of how all over the place and intense he gets with it just out of nowhere. And this show really really um just that, especially with the main jam vehicles like trucking in the the other one like he controls it and the way that he kind of like harnesses his main role because you know as a bassist and or any other kind of uh position as a man who handles the rhythm you're in a very interesting spot because you're like maintaining a groove but there reaches a certain point where you can kind of begin to control it and that's what he does here and specifically with that other one it's very much classic dead primal psychedelia like it's the bubbly tones it's got the breakdowns of sound that are somehow intense and soothing i think the way that he drives it and is and i didn't know that that art thing before so that definitely makes sense as to why he was so passionate about playing here i mean I Monet of one of Monet's paintings is my favorite painting ever, you know? So I like, I definitely understand how he feels just being there. And definitely now I can see that person. This is Phil's best show of the tour. Yeah. I, I can see that argument. Um, there's definitely lots of good candidates, but I agree with 
him like as far as why he's your favorite bassist it's sure he's like super creative and melodic and all that but it definitely is a, a psychological thing too the fact that he it doesn't view himself as like a background player he's like, well i'm just as entitled to steer the ship as jerry is if i feel like we should start doing this then we're going to start doing this and it definitely gives it a completely different vibe because you know he's a madman phil lash is a madman like i think if you're if you're a deadhead that it is it is common knowledge that phil lash is indeed out of his mind and it really it literally shows the moment bertha starts just with that insane just what the hell are you doing man i don't know what it is but keep going and it's funny because he's like older than the rest of them slightly i mean yeah he was classically he was a trumpeter man you know i mean that's that's, that's what happens when you're a a classically trained musician who goes into a rock band yeah also this playing in the band really hints at how the jam would look in the fall jerry like reaching several peaks with Phil and Bill really driving it underneath him. Because they are where they are, I think that that natural setting has a lot to do with the fact that they get to that primal vibe and playing in the band really highlights that. Um, I noted it as one of the most important markers in the show, more important as a litmus test than I think uh, it does in other shows. Um, But yeah, I, that playing in the band was absolutely just not nutty, but controlled chaos. Yeah, I could see that. Um, so then we move on to Luxembourg, May 16th, which was a, uh, a radio broadcast that, uh, started sometime after midnight i believe uh like they used to do sometimes on new year's eve shows um this one we don't have to go too in depth we'll, we don't want to keep you all too long uh i gave it an 85 what did you give it again 89 okay so i had it 20th which is third last um and yeah i did too Okay, cool. And really that's by default. Like it's nothing bad about it. Um, it's, I think it's almost, and I think you and I were talking about this at the time. I think we agreed. It's almost like focused to a fault in a sense. Yeah. Uh, but it's definitely tight and would have been a great like teaser or trailer for those listening on the broadcast. Um I used to think that I liked it better than Leal, but now I definitely prefer Leal. I think it has a lot more personality. Yeah. Um, there is nothing really to say. I think um, the only real problem I had, aside from it, them locking onto the wrong vibe, was I did not really like that. Not fade away, going down the road, not fade away. Sweet. Oh really? I I don't know why. Maybe it just wasn't built up enough. But like, I just think that if they had the right 
thing to grab onto, it would have it would have extended the middle eight up until five twenty five. Yeah. Yeah, it um it, it's like they it's obvious that it was in their head like okay, let's keep it to the point for the radio like the whole time, which kind of defeats the purpose of their their whole essence as a band. It was the commercial it's it's the commercialized debt, which is nothing you, you really want. I mean, it's still good, but it, yeah. it's definitely what they're they're trying this is more of an advertisement, if anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a hell of an ad. But compared to the, what comes before, and even what comes after, it's just, it just doesn't do it. It's like an example of why Peter Grant never puts Zeppelin on TV. Yeah. He's like, no, we don't do trailers. We don't, we don't do singles. You listen to the full album or you come see us for three hours. Yeah. Um, okay, so Munich, May 18th, another uh, cool old venue. I feel like um, I seem to, yeah, I think it, uh, it had, um, I believe the, the Nazis had like used it for functions at some point. And when you look at pictures of it, it has kind of like a dark vibe and that kind of seeps into the show i know munich has like was kind of the the initial like breeding ground of where like the nazis got started and i think they did some sightseeing like seeing stuff like that and uh and david lemieux even talked about this show having kind of dark vibes in the the deadcast episode about it um now i gotta tell you this um it begins with Phil saying that they're ironing out some technical difficulties, which might be this anecdote Sam Cutler told in the Deadcast episode about it. Um, so he said the building's fire marshal, um, who is an elderly like German guy who bore a striking resemblance to Hitler, he was wearing this bronze helmet that <laughs> looked like Alexander the Great, and apparently Jerry had had sat a lit joint in an ashtray on top of his amp and the fire marshal comes and like pours a bucket of water on it and like almost electrocuted himself to death apparently sam said there was like this giant flash and all the power went out and they um uh so they like took his helmet and they were like holding it hostage or something. Anyway, this big hoopla. So I'm guessing that happened before the start of the show. And that's why Phil says they're ironing out some technical difficulties when the recording starts. Um, Holy crap. But yeah, this one I think has that, that power of the German ones. It's like, it's not as laid back as Hamburg, but not quite as like explosive as Dusseldorf and Frankfurt. Um, but I do get those dark vibes the first set's really nice i like the pacing of it great playing nice nice vibes a bit of that bluesiness of hamburg but more energetic and again darker um phil starts to suggest greatest story ever told 
but then they open the second set with the first sitting on top of the world of the tour uh second of the year they did it march 25th at the academy and they do it twice at the lyceum and then it's dropped from the repertoire for good i really love it here opening the second set um it's cool to hear stuff from their debut with the 72 polish that crossroads of like the early dance hall energy but played so tight um dark star really packs a punch for being less than 30 minutes uh opening with a foreboding tuning jam and then taking on a strong aquatic feel it's, it's like jules verne joe or dark star yeah it's like you're you're uh you're sailing before the verse and that at times it's like you're floating in slow motion at times it's like you're in a submarine and then finally it's like you're running out of air shooting to the surface and then it gives way to morning dew shockingly for the first time ever and it's a really great emotional morning dew i think it's my favorite of the tour even ahead of the the one from the last night that's immortalized on the original album and then they stop after dew and then there's the minute long drum solo leading into a really good sugar mags which is interesting you start to sense the set list adventurousness ramping up here i mean it had started in rotterdam kind of and then took a break for two shows and then comes back here and then the lyceum there's a lot more like having fun with the order of things more like a multi-night run in the states um and then we get a, a gorgeous sing me back home and then after one more saturday night as the encore bob makes a comment about time constraints uh so perhaps they intended to play longer as it is it comes in just over three hours um yeah um donna uh, on that sing me back home was beautiful mm -hmm. i she stuck out more on that one than she did other ones i noticed that i can see that but also, yeah i didn't i didn't really like that sugar magnolia oh no no, uh, I think it, it didn't really have that energy for me, to me. Okay. Um, and the lyrical flubs kind of also killed it, but Bill had a sick little drum fill near the end, and they picked it up, so they mm. kind of redeemed themselves. But otherwise, yeah, um, that sitting on top of the world was awesome. Yeah. I, I, I agree on I remember when you first pointed out, I remember when I first listened to this show, <clears throat> I noticed the aquatic feel too, but I didn't think of it as a submarine as, uh, as picturesque as you did. But um, definitely that dark star was the highlight. I also noted um, that this good loving was Keith's best so far. And that Munich was like the full integration of Keith. Like from then on, he kind of became like, all right, yeah, he's a full on member, you know, like um, he etched his groove into the dead's wax finally, you know, like you can, like he's a full on member, even yeah. though he'd been with them for months. So I think that's um, not for the tour, 
but for the overall dead timeline, a huge turning point. Mm. Um, yeah, I would agree with that. Overall, as I say, the show, great dark vibe to it. Like the city's uh, complicated past rubbed off on their mood. Uh, they did visit the site of the beer hall pooch push the day before. Um, yeah, I gave this one a 94. What did you give it? 94. Beauty. Um, so that worked out to 14th for me. Was that, was that also 14 for me? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So they had the longest gap of the tour after that, before the May 23rd show at the Lyceum, during which time they took a detour to Switzerland, where they were going to play, um, but it kind of fell through. Um like they knew there weren't going to be when they headed there, but they decided to go see the Alps anyway. Uh, so then they get to London and they, before this, they'd had a very uh, spread out schedule by their standards, uh, hardly having any back-to-back nights unless they were really, uh, you know, in the same place or somewhere very close. Um, and now here to close the thing, to close the tour out at the Lyceum, they do four nights in a row. Um, and Sam Cutler mentioned this in the Lyceum episode. Um, he said the the only problem with the tour, as far as Jerry was concerned, was that there weren't enough shows. Like he hated having days off. He wants to play every single night. And Sam said uh, he would, like he took advantage of that and purposely would try to schedule tours so that they're, there weren't quite enough shows to Jerry's liking so that he would always have him like just chomping at the bit ready to, um, you know, tear a strip off the place every time they got to the show. Um, And I definitely think you can hear his enthusiasm this first night in London, which I gave a 96. um, One of the tightest of the tour, um, kind of like Luxembourg in the sense that that's the main feature, but longer and much better. Um, it's, it's too tight and has too many rarities with the sitting on top of the world and rock and pneumonia uh, to score beneath an A plus, but it doesn't have enough of that intangible magic to rank higher than the low A plus for me. Uh 19 song first set which is uh really good for the most part great energy as i say you can tell jerry especially was fired up with the extra days off this show has the it's jam suite takes up the lowest percentage of total runtime for the entire tour it's just dark star morning dew um and it's the one dark star on the tour that's never totally grabbed me um like it's still very good, it, even if it finishes last for this tour by default. 
um, just, I don't know. The well does have an excellent though, uh, going down the road, feeling bad, not fade away. Hey, Bo Diddley, not fade away sequence. And then a, a really nice uncle John's band encore. I actually, I actually really like this dark star. Um, and the reason why was because it, um, it didn't have that typical theme or motif that the other ones had. It was just jam gumbo and layered with vibes and tones to create, I don't know, just an all over the place one. You know, and that's why I really liked it. It was really different from the other ones. And I could see why you don't like it because I, one thing I noticed about your taste is that you definitely like ones where you're like, all right, yeah, we're going somewhere, you know, like, and I know we're going to be going somewhere. And the, the fact that we arrive at one place is awesome. But, you know, going from like a place to place to place to place to place to place to place in a dark star is so musically beneficial especially in a case like this, because it's just like, all right, cool. We're here now. All right. I don't like being here. Let's go there. You know, like, it's just, sure. it's a road trip, you know, it's sick. Yeah, I can see that. I also really loved this comes a time, specifically Jerry's phrasing. Yes. I would agree with that for sure. And yeah, I mean, otherwise, took the words out of my mouth that that rocking pneumonia oh my god when I, I was i was in the shower listening to that when it came out, i'm like what is this yeah. and i yeah. just kept on listening to it i couldn't like i was just like oh my god this is so cool i know it's neat it's one of only five times that they covered it uh, all in 1972 it was brilliant yeah it was brilliant Okay, uh, second night at the Lyceum, May 24th. I also gave a 96-2. It's really a coin flip between these two for me. This one's a bit shorter, but I feel like it has a bit more vibes. Opens with cold rain and snow, like the second Copenhagen. Uh, fitting for late May as opposed to mid-April, it's a bit brighter sounding than Copenhagen's, which sounds quite snowy. Um this on this day they had an afternoon softball game with the the new riders who opened for them at these shows and um they uh supposedly played an acoustic set in a local chapel um and i think that the both the acoustic thing and the just fun more relaxed feel like it's energetic but they feel like at peace and like they know they're preaching to the choir at this point with their fourth show in london um you know you get uh they played both dire wolf and black peter which is the only one of the tour um and i have to wonder if you know playing a baseball game earlier in the day put them in like a working man's kind of mindset um it's uh it's more more chill than the the wired brilliance of the first set the night before but equally well played kind of similar to the trend with the paris shows though 
you know, both are a notch or two beneath. Um, this time they opened the second set with Rock and Pneumonia. Um, I personally, this second set has got to be my favorite second set of the entire tour. Really? I, yeah, because I, I didn't know I loved Rock and Pneumonia until I heard it uh, 523, but this one's was just nuts. And then from going from that one to Mexicali Blues, which <laughs> I love the Cowboy songs, and then uh black peter but the massive suite was just mind-blowing like um it's that opening that one is just so ferocious like phil opens it up like just like like he was dropping an atom bomb you know just it goes to a lot of interest no no i was just agreeing with you oh um it goes to a hell of a lot of interesting places it like it gets so intense and at pig's organ gets takes on not just the voice of an organ but the voice of an entire gospel chorus you know it it's just so spacey yet together and like the way um keith's piano and bobby creates those jazzy rhythms they just kind of they're so distant but the space in between creates something so big it's just it's it's like they turned their old work into a wine aged it and brought it out for a party you know it's just incredible and that love light was like they they were like the Owen brothers Seriously, yeah. I mean, like that Pig and Keith call and response thing they had going, that was just nuts. I that second set was just phenomenal, top to bottom. I, I love that other one as well. Um, in just under 30 minutes, but it scratches all of the itches. Uh, intense thematic jamming, unique jazzy jamming. This it sounded like Star Wars to me, like you wandered into the that um the cantina in moss eisley spaceport on tatooine you know yeah. uh, and then tiger's really intense and they get in and out of it really efficiently it's not like you know 10 minutes of space yeah i'm with you on uh it wouldn't be my favorite second set of the tour but um it's a good one for sure um I- Oh yeah. When I tabulated the heady rankings for each of these shows, this one is by far the lowest rated show of the tour, which That's a shame. I can only assume that it's be due to getting lost in the shuffle cuz it's one of four at the Lyceum and the last night gets all the attention and Yeah. No, I mean that makes sense. I it's I don't know. I think this this show rocks. This show rocks. Definitely a personal love for this one. Mm-hmm. Just like if one of the most underrated of the tour, apparently. Yeah. It's 
this show deserves more love. People, if you get anything from this, I'm preaching to the choir here. If you get anything from this episode, it's go listen to 524 right now. Don't what even sc- finish it. What score did you give it again? A 98. Okay. I went 96. So, um, yeah. I guess two points different qualifies as a big disagreement for us. <laughs> I guess it does. I mean, um, mine's like a, apparently I, you have like a low 96 and I have a high 98. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then the penultimate night of the tour, May 25th, I gave a 98 and I actually have it up in sixth place. Um, I think it gets off to a slightly loose start with promised land. Uh, and then, uh, you know, a bit of a botched ending the the 95% of the song in the middle is good. Um, first brown eyed women since Rotterdam second, and then, uh, big boss man about as early as I've seen it in the set in the three slot. Um, one of the more unique set lists of the tour as well. Um, but I think uh, by the t- from Jack Straw through to the end, this show is like as good as any night on the tour. If it started slightly stronger, it could be even higher than a 98 for me. Um, one of the most explosive China riders of the tour. Uh, first me and Bobby McGee since Amsterdam. And it's a sweet one. Pigpen's final good loving is uh, definitely an a very ungood loving type version, uh, which you probably didn't like. Uh, I didn't mind it for a change. Uh, got that hot mellow, um, no rap Jerry on organ during the verses. Uh, kind of sounds like playing in the band in the middle, and then playing in the band itself follows which is likewise an exquisite 15 minute version. That's the longest thus far uh, would be eclipsed the following night by three minutes. Uh, This one, it's really smooth, but it drifts way out, like all the way to dark star territory. Um, And then maybe the prettiest broke down palace they ever played next. So tender and melancholic. Uh, They restrain themselves really well. And then, um Casey uh Casey Jones wraps up first which like this first set it starts somewhat shaky or less than like tops by this tour's lofty standards but then hits as a level as good as any starting around Jackstar show as I said um second set opens with me and my uncle big railroad China Cat shuffle or Chinatown shuffle <laughs> <laughs> one one of, and then one of the best ramble on roses um i think it's a london song with the references to like mary shelley and jack the ripper i think it, it makes sense that like this one and then the following night are like two of the best versions played in london um and then what really makes this show stand out and score so highly for me the jam suite um one of the best and most unique not just of this tour but their career in terms of the sequencing and this is where you can really tell that they're 
they're settled in and this this lyceum run has the vibes of like a Fillmore run back in the states um started with a phenomenal uncle john's band jerry's solo on this uncle john's band is my favorite moment of the tour it's like tear jerkingly good um and then has this gorgeous drift into Warfrat, you know, already hinting at where we're headed. And then Warfrat kind of takes on an interesting flavor being on the way to Dark Star as opposed to at the other end of it. Um, Jerry sings it nice and delicately. And then a very slick transition into Dark Star, skipping the signature intro riff and slipping straight into the theme. Um, now, with good loving sounding like playing in the band and playing in the band sounding like dark star. What does that leave for dark star? Well, it sounds like we're witnessing the creation story of a new planet to me, but maybe the new heaven and the new earth. Uh, it sounds, you know, far away and different and like higher somehow, but homey, like, it sounds like you, you've gone to heaven. Um, Eventually it turns on a dime into more sinister territory. Like we've wandered into a cave or, or are being followed down an old London alley by Jack the Ripper or something. And then this precipitates a descent towards the black hole, with them wandering nearly to tiger before they like, remember that we still haven't hit the first verse. And then the theme emerges suddenly and we're in, we get the verse 17 minutes. Um, I think this pre-verse feels much longer than 17 minutes in a good way. Uh, it seems like impossible to cover so much terrain in just 17 minutes. And then it gets very jazzy coming out of the verse before a really stunning understated feeling groovy jam reminds me a bit of the Feb 1371. Um, and then they pummel us with some intense tiger for a few minutes before shooting back into the atmosphere, sugar magnolia, which is uh, great apart from a slightly botched exit from the solo. Um, and then a really great comes a time delicate, like the broke down and wharf rat um, final sitting on top of the world that they ever played. Excellent. Um, one of the best going down the road, feeling bads of the tour. I thought, um yeah so anyway ultimately this show gets held back just a tad by those loose spots at the beginning but it peaks as high as any of the ones on the tour i think and it might be the best like diehard's favorite pick of the tour uh unique placements of the standard songs unique one-off i believe jam suite and they seem eager to get far out from the jump um there's a, a great comment about the Lyceum run from a guy on Hetty says lots of relaxed energy, sure of their audience, still exploring, knowing the spots, hitting the notes, taking their time, giving their all. Yeah. I mean, that first set really like, I don't know. I feel like, It, a lot of the songs didn't fit. I feel like once it hit Ramble on Rose, they really hit and they really hit their stride. 
because I agree with everything you said for post Ramble on Rose, but like that good loving was, you know, I, like it was just light of the song was just all right. Like the Mr. Charlie, like it didn't fit, but the Tennessee Jed and the brown eyed women and Jack Straw, like they were brilliant. Like the more up t- upbeat, higher tempo songs just didn't fit. And I just like maybe they felt the need to perform it. Maybe they wanted to try those songs with that vibe because normally it's completely different. It's it has a completely different sound. But I would doubt it was like I gave it the show in '94. Um. Which I'm kind of questioning now because that second set is absolutely is an absolute masterclass, but that first set just doesn't do it for me. I I think it's a jumble. I I they they, they don't really know what they're looking for. They don't really know where they're going. Um, but as you said, the Jack Straw, um, Brown Eyed Women. Broke Down Palace was awesome. Um, oh, yeah. You know, and even the, um, you know, I mean, a big railroad blues is all right. I don't know. Once it, once it hits Ramble on Rose, it definitely takes it. The show takes another form. Okay. So, yeah, we, we basically, we basically agree, just disagree about how quickly it flips the switch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can kind of see that. It's definitely one where they, um, you can tell from the start, like they, they just want to skip to, to getting far out, and, and the the more delicate like ballad types really flourish too. Yeah, that comes to time was, that's closing solo was magnificent. Yeah. Okay, final night of the tour. Let's uh, try to get it in before we get cut off here <laughs> okay. you gave it 100 i gave it 97 and had it sitting just outside my top 10 at 11 which will be blasphemous to many i'm sure uh you take the lead go ahead well i'd like to preface this by saying that i was driving from saratoga new york to uh ellsworth maine when i listened to this show and i had it was the perfect, perfect soundtrack, which may have boosted my rating, but it's just, it just starts off bursting. Um, it's got all the aspects that I like to see in a dead show. It's got technicality, the feel, the energy. They're ready to just go out with the bang. You know, um, Bobby on that loser, phenomenal. Uh, that next time you see me solo from Jerry, incredible the only what a, did you notice that weird hiss in el paso yeah that pissed me off i yeah, was like am i just going it. nuts but ugh. anyway um as you said before the playing in the band um the one thing that i noticed about that and i think the most important aspect of it especially considering we gave it that litmus test uh role um it really really emphasized the band's oneness for that night um it's it they, they really really also mess with the vibe as well like they switch it up it's up and down left and right it's just like it's kind of all over the place but it's still contained 
Um, I'm going to skip what I have to say about that not fade away because I love it so much. I want to, you know, but um, the reason why I love this show is because of that jam suite, which is just nuts. The trucking drawn out to where you have no idea when the hell the other one is going to start, but because you can tell that it's going to be the other one, but you just don't know when, you know? And then the drums back into the other one, Morning Dew, the other one, that, 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 the other one, whenever they do the other one, like a, a set of three, it's just great. It, it, I don't even know how to like, because you can do so much with the other one. You can do so much more with the other one than you can Dark Star when it comes to a transition vehicle, I think. Um, like, if you're going from Dark Star into Sing Me Back Home, or you're going into the other one into Sing Me Back Home, I'd rather have the other one. If you know what I mean. That's interesting. I've always thought uh, Dark Star was more open ended because it's it's constantly like like a flower that just keeps blossoming endlessly, whereas the other one is kind of like constantly collapsing in on itself. Yeah. And I think that's what really does the other one justice when it comes to transitioning into another song, because dark star, sometimes you have to like, it's always blossoming. Yeah. But you have to tear down the audio suit and rebuild it and make sure it kind of has like some of like, some of the transitions into sugar magnolia from dark star. I'm like, okay. All right. Like it's all right. Like it goes from zero to 60, but I think with the other one, Especially into seeing back home from this one was just awesome. That second other one, like not like the um, what was the the other one that I uh, four sixteen? Mm-hmm. No. Oh, um, crap! What was the other? Oh, five three. Yeah, um, the other one, the second one was the best one, but the highlight of this show for me was the clapping initiated, not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad, not fade away. The way that they just, like, how could you refuse that? Mm -hmm. How could you refuse the entire crowd clapping, not fade away? You can't. You simply can't. And I, like, I don't really, didn't really have much to say about this one, like in depth, like I did with five, three or my other ones that I really loved because it was just like, I enjoyed every minute of it. I was too busy listening to it and driving. You need that sometimes. It was just like, I don't know. I definitely think this is the best show of the tour. Really? You like it even better than Paris? I do. Okay. Well, you're not alone on that. Um, or eh, maybe, maybe. Eh. So, for me, I find it difficult to score. Uh, like by and large, it's played as well as any on the tour. However, I find the other one itself somewhat underwhelming. The the bookends, truck and morning dew, and sing me back home are as good as advertised. But the other one itself, to me, never really takes on a 
character of its own. It's just kind of the glue between the parts. Um, and playing in the band, yes, yeah, the longest of the tour, but I found it kind of reserved and wandering a bit. Uh, and also there's a lack of pig pen contributions. He does not sing at all in the second set. Uh, his health was starting to, to really wear on him. Yeah, you know, that I can see. I just think that knowing it was the last one, they really put a hell of a lot more effort and energy into it. It has a certain edge to it. It has a certain edge and feel to it that the technicality in to your ears might not have been as impressive, but I definitely think that edge raises the technicality a large amount, even though it's still there. Yeah, it definitely has those last night vibes, as it were, uh, that we talk about in the in the Zeppelin community a lot, where the last night of a tour you sense that they're really not wanting it to end and like taking their time exploring every nook and cranny of the song. Yeah, I mean yeah. I didn't even think about that pig pen thing though. That I'm gonna go back to five three. I'm gonna go back to saying five three is my favorite of the tour. Because of pig pen. Yeah. All right, well, um as we've now been talking for about the length of one of the longer shows of the tour, um I guess we should let people go. Um I mean we could go on and on, but I don't think uh there's really any need for it. Save some something to talk about next year. If uh, if I decide to do it again, um, so uh, yeah, th- thank you so much for for coming on and uh, for doing this exercise with me. It was fun to have someone on the journey with me. No, I mean it was a pleasure and a privilege. I mean. Uh, this is my first time doing a tour pilgrimage or pilgrimage of any kind. Uh, aside from that one time I listened to every single Beatles studio album on the way to Syracuse, New York. Like you did all 12 or 13 in one sitting? That's right. That's a lot. That, I, yeah. Like it's, it was awesome. It was a learning experience. It changed my ears. It changed the way I listen and look at music uh thank you yet again for this opportunity i'm very glad to have done it my pleasure man oh you'll be you'll be back on sometime in the not too distant future i'm sure damn right all right i hope you enjoyed my conversation with alex about europe 72 for its 50th anniversary uh one of my favorite tours by any band and when you factor in that it was multi-tracked in its entirety and has been released in its entirety. Uh, It makes it, I think the most enjoyable tour to listen to start to finish. Um, Since you, it's so fun to compare apples to apples like this because the biggest variable when you're listening to live stuff, the sound quality and the completeness of the tape is eliminated. They're all basically presented in full 
in multi-track quality. Uh, the few exceptions are uh, Casey Jones from the opening night and one more Saturday night from Rotterdam, but they can be found elsewhere. Um, so yeah, I had, you knew I had to talk about it for the 50th anniversary. I hope did it justice. Uh, it was a deserving topic for episode 100 and uh, have an awesome Father's Day weekend. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about um, Bob Marley and the Whalers Exodus album for its 45th anniversary, I believe. So uh, excited to talk about that. As I said at the beginning, thank you for listening. If you are new, welcome, and I hope you liked what you heard. If you've been listening for a while, thank you so much for your support. I forgot to mention at the beginning, I encourage you to follow the show on any and all social media platforms so you can be kept abreast of all the latest happenings pertaining to the show, and the handles are listed in the description. Um, what else? Uh, subscribe to Dr. Cropper's Office Hour on Apple Podcasts if you are interested in a bit more from me, and let me know if you have any topic requests. Uh, if you are interested in starting your own show, uh, if you sign up with my hosting service, Buzzsprout, you will get a $20 Amazon gift card courtesy of your affiliation with me. If you feel so inclined to leave a rating and review wherever you're listening, those are very helpful to me. Lastly, you may notice the, uh, uh, buy me a coffee link at the bottom of the description, the, uh, virtual tip jar, no pressure, of course, but if you feel so inclined, it helps me uh, stay awake and energized as I uh, listen to and analyze all of this great music for you all. So have a great Father's Day weekend. Happy Father's Day to all of the dads listening, including my own, if uh, either of them are listening. And uh, I will see you next week to talk about Exodus. All right, class dismissed. Mm-hmm.